You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. CLSY Beacon Radio, your beacon on the region. You're listening to Mazzy in the Morning with your host, Grant Mazzy. Good morning, Pontypool. This is Radio 660, The Beacon. Down here in the dungeon, under the street they call drum. I'll be banging the drum for you all morning. I'm Grant Mazzy, and as always, I'll be taking no prisoners. Now, mm, I got my coffee here. And taking a look outside, I'd say... That's our top story for today, folks. Now, I had uh, a strange experience on my way into work this morning, and I'd like to get some advice from you people later on. When do you call 911? Think about it. In our top story today, a big, cold, dull, dark, white, empty, never-ending, blow-my-brains-out Seasonal affective disorder freaking kill me. Now weather front that'll last all day. Well, maybe when the wind shifts later on, we'll get a little greenhouse gas relief from the industrial south. Hail Mary, yellow I walk. We go to Ken Loney in the sunshine chopper. Above the clouds, Grant. Hey, gonna stay in that bird up there during the storm? Yes, sir. I'll be up here, Grant, watching all the routes in and around our region. What can you see there, Ken? Oh, God! They're pulling two people out of a van! Who are they? There's a bunch of them. They're, they're, they're people. But, but they're crazy. They're, they're, they're fighting them. People are getting killed out there. Oh! Ken, do you see any police? Is anybody oh, trying to restore know. order um, down there? I don't know what the hell has just happened. Well, we're uh, we're gonna have to see if we can. Uh, Ken, we're Ken. Are you there, Ken? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Morris Brzezinski. Happy, 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 happy. This week we are looking at the 2008 film from Bruce McDonald, Pontypool. The film is the story of three people working at a radio station, working the day of a zombie-like apocalypse. Yada, 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 spoilers, blah, 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 purple monkey dishwasher. So, Morris, when was the first time you saw Pontypool? And what did you think? This was actually a first time watch specifically for the show, but I was already familiar with Bruce McDonald. Uh, about 25 years ago, I got to see Highway 61 on its uh, local cinema run here. And we discussed Hardcore Logo. Uh, I can't remember if it was earlier this year or late last year for 
the See Here podcast. And both of those films, for me, were really, really great takes on the road movie, both different to each other in tone and to what I think others were doing in the road movie genre. But neither of them prepared me for what Pontypool was going to be like. I went in knowing nearly nothing. Uh, the poster suggested it involved a radio announcer, and I'd heard it involved zombies, but really I knew otherwise next to nothing. And my first impression was I absolutely loved it, but I knew I had to watch it a second time because there was a ton of stuff there that I thought, hang on, I think I've missed something here. The opening sequence before the story begins made me think I was going to be watching a previously unshot Twilight Zone script. And it was an absolutely fantastic setup. Just when you think it's a setup for something big that's going to happen, Stephen McCaddy actually tells you just that. I thought it was a really, really clever film that takes a well-worn concept of, you know, the virus infection and brought something new to telling that story. And for me, it was an absolutely perfect combination. It was terrifying and very clever. I think I saw this one at the Toronto International Film Festival when it played in 2008. And it's kind of weird because I didn't really intend for this to happen. But last week we covered Martyrs, which also played 2008. And now Martyrs played at the Midnight Madness screening, or, or a series, I should say. And I would have thought that Pontypool would have played that as well. And then when I found out that it didn't, I thought, okay, well, for sure it must have played Canada first. Because there's this weird thing that... A movie could be absolutely perfect for the Midnight Madness series, but if it's Canadian, it goes into another track. They have this whole thing of like Canadian pride, so they want to show stuff in this whole series called Canada First. But for some reason, this one ended up in a series called Wavelengths, which is usually more avant-garde kind of stuff. And I can kind of see that with this, but really, this seems like it was tailor-made for a midnight crowd. I mean, this seems like... It would play very well to people who are into zombies, into sci-fi, into interesting ideas. I mean, to have a a different play on the zombie virus kind of thing, mm. fantastic. But no, this was a, a, a wavelength screening. So, But I was completely blown away by this, and it's one of those movies that really sticks with you. So I'd be curious, you know, in five, ten years, let's talk again and see how much of Pontypool you remember. I think this is a sort of film that uh, will, as I've sort of already indicated, will play very well to repeated screenings. And uh, over the next five to ten years, I will definitely be returning to this uh, a few more times. I, I think it's a sort of film that's going to, reveal a little bit more of itself there's there's a i mean there's layers here which i guess i picked up on after the first couple of screenings that uh that i did you know specifically for the podcast but i think there's going to be little bits here and there that i'm just going to uh, sort of discover and maybe there's some sort of things which might even be local which i didn't quite get i know that there was there's talk in the film about french separatism and I know that that's a big issue over in uh, Canada, you know, uh, Quebec versus the rest of the country. But there's, I'm, I'm sure there's other local things which uh, I might not have quite picked up on. So I'm looking forward over the, the next few years to uh, viewing this a few more times. Yeah, I have to say this is so well made. And just the way that things are revealed to us as we go through the movie that it, it does get better on each viewing. I mean, it did blow me away the first time I saw it, but yeah, each time I watch this, I pick up a little bit more. And just to see 
where they reveal information and when they might remind us of something. I mean, it's it's, it's very, very skillful. I think that it's it's put together really, really well. One thing that this film does really, really well is looking like it is a film. I know that the the act, or, or sorry, I should say the art of doing a uh, one-location film can be very, very tricky. There have been uh, other films that had the one-location and it ended up looking like it was a play that had just been filmed. And particularly, I'm thinking in recent times of the Roman Polanski film, Carnage. And I guess for me, it didn't help that I'd seen the play as well. And to be honest with you, I didn't care for either the play or the film. But that film really, to me, did look like just a play. And this one never did. I'd read some articles about Ponty Pool and saying that it was very much audio horror. And yet... I think it's short selling how this looks actually as a film. I think it's still very cinematic. It's more or less, you know, one location and, you know, the audio certainly does make it cinematic, but there's still visuals that make it cinematic. And as we go, I'll sort of bring a couple of those scenes in that uh, Bruce McDonald and his cinematographer did to make it look like a film rather than just looking like a filmed play. Well, I think they do a, a, a nice thing of taking us out of the radio station. We start outside of the radio station. We start in this, uh, well, really, we start with a waveform. And that's one of the most visually striking things for me. And the way that we return to that waveform throughout the, uh, the, the proceedings and just seeing that wave changing and following along and hearing Grant Mazzy, the, the character played by Stephen McCaddy, he, hearing his voice and seeing his voice and having this whole story that he tells about Mrs. French's cat. Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen Honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the cat. Nobody. Until... Last Thursday morning, when Miss Collette Bessine swerved her car to miss Honey the Cat as she drove across a bridge. Well, this bridge, now slightly damaged, is a bit of a local treasure and even has its own fancy name, Pont de Flac. Now, Colette, that sounds like culotte. That's panty in French. And Bessine means pool. Panty pool. Flac also means pool in French, so Colette Piscine in French panty pool drives over the Pont de Flac, the Pont de Pool, if you will, to avoid hitting Mrs. French's cat that has been missing in Ponty Pool. Ponty Pool. Ponty Pool. Panty Pool. Pont de Flac. What does it mean? I mean, that reveals so much about the film and about language, and it's this whole play upon how things sound versus what these words are and how they translate from English to French. And it's just this amazing little story. And just hearing his voice, it's so hypnotic as he's going through and telling this and talking about the way that you know this translates to that and that really it's kind of a play on this and the way that it's you know panty pool and then ponty pool and pond de flac and all this it, it it's it's wonderful and then taking us into this snowstorm with Grant Mazzy and him there 
talking on the phone and then also hearing his voice coming over the radio at the same time, we already have this kind of dissonance a little bit of having him in two places, having his voice on the radio and having him in front of us talking to his agent and complaining and setting up this whole thing of how he feels like he's too big of a fish to be in this small pond of Pontypool. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you whether you thought th- – this is just a little impression that I got that – they were maybe even doing something of a uh, homage in that opening scene to uh, the uh, Philip Kaufman uh, invasion of the body snatchers from 1978. So I, I sort of got this feeling of Kevin McCarthy banging on the uh, car window, which had um, Donald Sutherland. And um, it's possibly the only jump out of your seat moment in the film. Most of this is a slow burn, a slow creeping uh, more of a, a horror of the feeling of unease, what's going to happen next. But with the bang of the audio, the, the music build up and the bang of the, the conversationalist hitting on his car window and you're thinking, what the hell's going on? This is all within like the first minute post credit sequence. And I, I just really got that uh, feeling, oh, yeah, this seems to me like a tribute to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> Listen to me. Something terrible. Please. You're next. Here they are. They're already here. Come. You're next. They're coming. They're coming. They must have done something. <gasps> Which I'm sure shares some common uh, themes with uh, with Ponypool. I'd be surprised if Bruce McDonald wasn't a fan of that film. Yeah, and that person that's outside the window, not really asking for help, not really even that. She didn't even seem that desperate. Just the way that she's repeating blood, blood, blood over and over again. It's just like, wow, okay. And then the way that he will shout after her and you hear the echoes of his voice, but it isn't a true echo. It doesn't sound like his voice returning to him. It sounds like it's been taken and changed and then brought back to him. It feels like maybe it's passed into the conversationalist realm and, and being bounced back through somebody else's voice. Obviously, we'll get into who these conversationalists are, but we, we have that set up right away, which I appreciate. And then having him show up at the radio station, and then once we get inside, I mean, that is where we stay through 95% of the film. I think there's really a few breaks to go outside to show some speakers that are on the outside of the radio station. And then there's one sequence of these obituaries, which uh, we'll talk about definitely, which again, takes us right out of the station, but they're presented in such a different way, shot in black and white, and they almost look like still photographs. But so it is such a break from that, one setting that we have but it's nice that there is so much space inside of the radio station that you don't feel like you're in you know the booth and then outside of the booth i mean that's where you are a lot of the times but the way that he shoots it really kind of keeps us on our toes even though when we do get the shot of the speaker as you say we do get that little bit of brief respite as to uh the the outside world it's still looking towards the studio we don't ever see what uh grant and laurel ann and uh sydney see when uh, the brief moments when they are looking outside uh the closest that we get is you know when 
we get the conversationalists or zombies or whatever you want to call them try to break into the studio. We see them coming to the inside of the station, but we never really see the outside world again after that opening uh, after that opening scene where Grant's driving to the station. So, yeah, a little bit of visual respite, but not really. It's still that world for the whole film. And I like that they're keeping that from us, you know, keeping us in suspense, right. keeping us in that audio realm. So we don't have, you know, we see those shadows on the, the door at one point, but that's really about it. We don't get that obligatory scene from, or the shot from Night of the Living Dead or Shaun of the Dead looking out and seeing the masses of zombies coming up to the, to the house in most cases, to the pub and others, or to the radio station in this case. While we're still talking about the setting, I just wanted to briefly talk a little bit about the studio itself. This also sort of ties into what I was saying before about the film definitely being a cinematic thing rather than just a, a play that's been shot on film. So there's that scene where uh, very early on where you know Grant's just walked into the studio and he has that conversation with Laurel Ann and she gives him the bottle of of uh, whiskey, I think it is. Uh, and, you know, she's obviously in thrall of having this big city jock coming and working in her station. So we see this shot framed of the two of them having this conversation. And the first time around, I didn't even sort of really pay attention to it, but it's Grant and Laurel Ann in the midground. And then when he wants to, when he's finished with the conversation, he walks away. And then the foreground, which is you, you get that the sh- shot is from the perspective of the inside of the studio booth. And all of a sudden we get into clear relief. It becomes more into focus. We see the microphone and the studio desk, which in a way, are, if not quite the villains of the piece, but are the propagators of the virus. He's going to say what he says on on the air and he's propagating this virus which is language and you know we'll obviously be speaking more of that that but i just really love that we get that of music at that point and the more clear relief of that shot where we see this is the villain here's the downtone and the first time you watch it well at least in my case i was sort of thinking why are we getting this down music why what's what's this mean and it's only the second time where you know what's coming i thought oh my god Gosh, that was absolutely brilliant that he took that shot. I'm sure it's you know no coincidence he's showing that uh, uh, in that visual space. The acting in this movie, the music in this movie. You've talked about the music a little bit, and just it's there and it is playing so much of the time that it it, it kind of becomes I don't want to say like wallpaper, but it's there and it's just adding to things so much and then every once in a while it'll drop out and it's even more effective when it drops out just because it's kind of been our friend at that point or it's kind of like leading us through these moments because there are times where the music gets super intense yes. and oh my gosh I really like when that happens but we should talk about the characters a little bit. So you mentioned Laurel Ann, who's played by uh, Georgina Riley. And yeah, she's one of the uh, audio engineers and doesn't really go on the air very much. 
definitely a younger person, though she has had some experiences. They talk very early on about how she was part of this parade the year before, this returning heroes thing, and she has spent some time in Afghanistan. So she's. it seems like she might have seen some shit. Yes. Of course, Grant Massey, played by Stephen McCaddy, and he, oh my God, this role, he is just so tremendous in this. And I've I've seen McCaddy in so many other things, but of course, in this one, it seems like his face and his voice are just the stars of the show. Just to see so many of these close-ups that were given and to hear this just velvet voice that he has and... I, I, it's just wonderful. I mean, he's captivating. You know, we, it's no wonder that we get that from the very opening. His voice just kind of bringing us into this with that whole Mrs. French's cat story. And throughout the rest of this movie, I mean, he his voice is what grounds us in this entire thing. And there are so many times where he's saying things that are being fed to him. But then there are times where it seems like he's almost making things up whole cloth you know it's like sometimes sydney Breyer, uh the the character played by lisa hool she will feed stuff to him or or laurel ann will feed things to him through um, uh his monitor but then there are other times where he just starts talking it's like where is he getting this stuff is he just making it up or is this just him interpreting things and then at the same time he also kind of is getting up on his soapbox very very often it's like, okay, um, are you just saying things to incite people? It seems like he, we don't get a whole lot of his backstory. We get a little bit that he was fired from his previous job. And like I said before, he does feel like he, it seems like he thinks he's a bigger fish than what Pontypool's waters offer. And it just seems like he, you know, he has that whole thing about how he wants to piss off the audience because he thinks that's what they really want. And where Sydney is coming at it from a completely different way that people just want to know when the school bus is going to show up and they don't need to be pissed off. And yet he is look, he's very much damaged goods. I know that you've gone and said that he come he is this character who feels he should be back in the big city, probably Toronto, uh, to be doing the big station things. It's been indicated that he's been fired from something. And, you know, as you said, we don't really know for what, but there's that moment where, uh, Sydney Breyer says to him, look, you just can't say these things. You can't do what you're doing. And she comes across like the school mom and he says, all right, all right. And he puts his head down. And uh, this is not the sort of shock jock that we know. I mean, you, you couldn't imagine anyone telling Howard Stern, look, Howard, you've gone a little bit overboard. He'd be just saying, no, fuck you. I'm going to say what I want. Grant Mazzy sort of capitulates. He's probably been through a lot more than what it is that, you know, he wants to actually even say here what his character is going to say. So I really like that sense of vulnerability. This is not just he could be a blowhard in, I think, what would have been a lesser film. Uh, I, I really like that combination of, well, I'm going to try a little bit of what I'm what I was famous for at my peak. And then he's so easy to just be told, uh, no, you will not do that. You will not do that. And ultimately he wants to put his voice on the air. It's something about his ego. He still wants to be heard. And if it means that he's got to talk about the weather or he's got to go to Ken Loney and the sunshine chopper and just do bland everyday talk about this, when the school bus arrives, like he's told to, He's going to do it. So I, I really love that combination of vulnerability and 
trying to be a little bit of the blowhard that he was before uh, before the film starts. Now you mentioned that whole idea of this not really looking like a filmed play. The biggest thing that came to my mind when you said that was talk radio and how that kind of looks like a filmed play, but at times it doesn't. I think that Stone did a pretty good job of, again, taking us out of the station at times, but there are other times where it's just like, okay, yeah, this looks like a Bogosian one act kind of a thing, and, and I'm okay with that. It's a fantastic film. And, of course, Bogosian was really kind of playing on that whole shock jock kind of thing that was very popular at the time i'm curious did that come over to you you guys do you have those those uh shock jocks that we uh have so many of now in the u.s uh, yes we do uh there's there's a couple of big ones out of sydney uh and we you know we have a couple in melbourne you know more on the right wing conservative Line, although I'm also thinking of um, a couple, one or two at the uh, other end of the political spectrum as well. Ultimately, ego is ego and voices want to be heard. But I still imagine that there's, even for all the shock jocks that we have, uh, or those who want to big note themselves, I still think that there's more of a culture of it in the US, probably by virtue of the fact that, you know, the, the broadcast spectrum is a whole lot more wider and, uh, the the media is far far larger in the US than it is here. But yes, we we do have the concept. We do have those sorts of people. But I just imagine it's a bigger thing over there. I said that he looks a lot like Don Imus, and you weren't necessarily familiar with Imus, but Don Imus, I can't say that I listened to much of him. I just know of him more from <laughs> when Howard Stern would make fun of him, or he used to have a uh, televised um, version of his radio show. I think it started in like mid nineties and he just, well, he, he looked kind of like a zombie and he <laughs> always wore this cowboy hat. He just, he looked like somebody that must've done a lot of Coke in the day. And then I did find out that he, you know, has, uh, had substance abuse problems. I think a lot of people that, you know, kind of came up in the eighties did have substance, substance abuse problems as far as being a, a celebrity and cocaine kind of went together. It was either that or alcohol. And, um, he was right there with them, but yeah, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that McCaddy wears the, the cowboy hat in here and he wears his cans, you know, underneath his chin, just like I did. And yeah, I miss, uh, had been famously fired a few times. So I can kind of see the Grant Massey character playing off of some of the I tropes, you know, but he doesn't seem nearly as racist as Don I was. I mean, that was another thing was, uh, you know, him making fun of the Rutgers, uh, basketball team, uh, women's basketball team on, uh, Friday. I apologize for some remarks that I made uh, on this program to the women's basketball team at Rutgers university. I didn't think it was necessary to offer any excuse. No, I don't think there is now. I didn't think there was any, uh, uh, need for me to put into any sort of context what happens on this program because I unwisely just assumed that everybody knows and obviously they don't. He's pushing buttons, but he doesn't seem to be outrageous. Uh, the whole thing with the cops being drunk, that was interesting and especially that conversation afterwards when he talks about the cops being drunk and the, the ice fishermen being drunks and all this kind of stuff. And then when Sydney reveals that the one of the cops or both of the cops are alcoholics and one of them is her ex-brother-in-law, 
that one really kind of hit home and that kind of shut him up, which I appreciate that. And then I like at that point, he's kind of struck out a little against her, maybe unknowingly, but also by going off on this tangent. And then I like the way that she kind of pulls the rug out from him. And then that's when she reveals that uh, the guy in the, uh, what was it? The sunshine chopper is actually just sitting up on a hill, looking down with the uh, sound effects going on. And that really takes Grant back as well. Cause he really believed that this guy was in a chopper flying around Pontypool, looking at the traffic on the 401. Look, I, I think that's actually a, a really interesting central theme about the film where audio is deceptive. He's in the same position that we are, uh, or, or rather the, the listening audience to the radio, the viewing audience of the film, and Stephen McCaddy's character. We're all under the impression that this Ken Loney guy in the Sunshine Chopper really is in a chopper. And probably now be a good time, if we could, to make reference. We, you also wanted to sort of bring into the discussion War of the Worlds, and, uh, or in particular Orson Welles' production of War of the Worlds uh, for the Mercury Theater on the air. And once again, you know, I, I suspect that it's that whole Ken Loney thing that's paying tribute or it must have been somewhere in Bruce McDonald's mind creating that character. The difference is that in this film, we never get let up. We, we, never, we never see Ken Loney. He's, we, always, we always ever hear him, whereas we do see what's happening in Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre on the Air production of War of the Worlds in the film The Night That Panicked America. We, you know, we can sit here smug, and I know that people over the years have talked about that production and said, oh, I can't believe that people were fooled. I can't believe that people were fooled. And yet we're watching here in this film and really very equally fooled that uh, Ken Loney is in the chopper. And really for a little while, I think that when Ken Loney is saying, oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I'm seeing things here that are going to affect me the rest of my life. They're ripping that person out of the out of the van and they're biting into his chest. Oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And at first, we don't know. Hang on. Is he serious? And I, I think Grant Mazzy is even sort of doubting. Hang on. Is he serious? Am I going to be once bitten, twice shy sort of thing? And I think at one point, isn't it where Grant gets up to walk out of the studio? He says, you're just taking the piss out of me. I've had enough. You're all making fun of me. Uh, he's, he's, you're telling me what to do. Ken Loney is doing this as a, is this an initiation prank? What the hell's going on? And he's, he's starting to doubt, but we're not, we're not really sure. I think, is this a prank? What's going on? At least I know I certainly did. One, I like that Mazzy really, other than what was being fed to him, he seems to trust, you know, the two women that are with him, but otherwise he doesn't really trust anything. And when the, um, he hears this message that's broken in on the radio, uh, this message in French, he's just like, well, allegedly this is happening and, and we got cut off and it might be this, it might be that. And he really is like couching everything as far as, you know, is this real? Is this not real? And it seems like by that time in the movie, he does seem to be doubting everything. And I was like, okay, yeah, he can't trust his own ears now. And he's very much like the audience. You know, we can't really trust everything that's going on either. Obviously we pretty much know that he's not being pranked, uh, but who knows what's happening outside of the, the walls of the studio. We are as blind to the rest of the world as he is. And I, I like that we're put into that same position with him. 
Can we talk a little bit about the uh, about the words and the language itself? Because yes. that's that's really the crux of all this. And, and probably now with election season being on, I think you know, this film probably takes uh, a whole lot more meaning on with uh, with the language. So the whole indication in this story is that well, I mean, I, they specifically say that phrases or words of affection in the English language should be avoided. But just sort of you know, making a bit more of a wider thing about it, we know that well, we've already gone and mentioned about shock jocks and them say they, they say what they do to get a reaction in this wider broadcasting age and in the internet age where we get catchphrases like i don't know make america great that get <laughs> words and phrases that we say right we're going to get this message across but it doesn't really mean anything but people interpret it to have a meaning and that's where the language gets degraded, and that's the real infection. It's it's very uh, infection of the language, but I think in general it's probably saying something about how when we reduce language, there's the potential to reduce thought. And people, uh, the, the conversationalists in this film, they get poisoned, they get infected when they find that they have, uh, they don't, they no longer have the words to say what it is that they want to do, and they start forgetting words and then they get stuck on this one word and that's it for them. Yeah. And it's no small coincidence as this is all happening on uh, Valentine's day. And it's funny because I don't know if you have this quote unquote holiday over there, but we have this horrible made up day called sweetest day over here, which is what we call a hallmark holiday. So it's something, it's an excuse to sell cards and candy and all this kind of stuff. And that's uh, so yeah, we're recording this on sweetest day. So when I was watching it again this morning and all this is happening on Valentine's day, I'm like, Oh yeah, I should probably buy my wife a card. I've never heard of sweetest. Sorry, sweetest. I've only heard of sweet as in uh, be kind, rewind, making a sweeted film, but never heard of sweetest today. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's S-W-E-E-T-E-S-T. Oh, oh, sweetest. Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, not opposed to Swedish day. Yeah, where you go out and you have you go to Ikea and you have some delicious meatballs. <laughs> Is yeah. there a day for that? Uh, I wish there was. <laughs> Valentine's Day, so, so full of just baby talk and terms of endearment. And they say in the the film at one point that you should not use terms of endearment. Those things, basically it's, it, it, it kind of says those really mean nothing. You know, the, <laughs> those words don't mean anything. And those are the easiest ones to use. And those are the most likely to infect you. And yeah, just to, I mean, we were talking earlier about the ingeniousness of this film and to have language be, the thing that carries the disease versus, you know, something airborne, something transmitted by bite or by scratch or by blood, by any known means. But to have this be a mental disease, to have this be something like an earworm where it's going to get into your head and you're not going to be able to get a word out. You're not going to be able to figure out what you're trying to say. It's almost like this kind of advanced dementia that leads to violence in this whole thing about how you're trying to 
get inside of, of someone else's mouth, you know, and there's this whole thing in the, the book of Pontypool, which we'll talk a little bit about later, where people will basically go into fits and break their own necks when they're just trying to get these words out and they can't even seem to, to manage that. And there, it's funny because as I was watching it today, there's a moment where Lori, Laurel Ann gets a uh, phone call and she's like, what's that? What are you saying? And then she's the one who much later in the film ends up turning. And I kept wondering, I wonder if somebody said something to her on the phone and that's how it got into her, you know, and that's how easy this is. You can just hear a word or just get stuck on a word and it seems to be translate transmitted only via English. So it's almost like our language has become so degraded by things like the, you know, make America great again, those kind of catchphrases or terms of endearment that English is now the perfect way to transmit a disease. I think it's, as you say, probably no coincidence that it was narrowing it down to terms of endearment because in a day and age where we can say, I love another person and I love this TV program and I love my fridge. The word really has sort of ceased to have anything meaningful. You know, there was probably a time where, you know, to say you loved someone was you know, the most, maybe the most scary thing that you could do. You know, you weren't sure if you were going to get that return of love back. But now it, it just seems to be a word or any term of affection just seems to have been cheapened by ad agencies and Hallmark greeting cards as as you've already gone and indicated there. Over the last two weeks, I've been bombarded by the word pussy so many times that it seems to have kind of lost its meaning. It's like those times where you try to come up with a word or you get a word stuck in your head and you just say it over and over and over again until it just becomes nothingness. And that's kind of the way, well, this whole election cycle seems to have been that. But especially this last week after that tape broke, it's just like, I'm hearing that word more now than when Pussy Riot was a thing over in Russia. And it seemed like all of the news pundits were just so happy to report upon Pussy Riot because they had a chance to say that. And now it's the same thing all over again. Just pussy, pussy, pussy everywhere I turn. I just wanted to sort of come back to what you said a a moment ago uh, about Laurel Ann. So she gets the infection. And that really, I think her transformation in the film and what she does with throwing herself at the booth because she can't hear what's going on in there. That's absolutely terrifying. We, we've already gone and said that the whole notion of using words rather than a bite, uh, as in, say, the Romero zombie films, is you know, it's clever, but it also, in a way, makes it more terrifying, because if you're watching a film like uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead, and actually, I just recently rewatched Dawn of the Dead, to sort of get that contrast, the old-fashioned sort of zombie way. In a way, this is more terrifying because in Dawn of the Dead, you sort of think, right, well, as long as the characters manage to lock themselves in and stay away from the zombies, they'll be fine. But in this film, you just never know. Is someone going to say the word that's going to trigger someone else into turning into a conversationalist? And I think that's where the terror really, really comes into this film. And, you know, what you've just went and mentioned actually that phone call that didn't strike me. I think that's, you're you're probably right there where she has that phone call and she does get that look of 
confusion on her face and that might have triggered off the word. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that's really very, very clever. And in, in hindsight, looking back at that, it, it really does seem, as I say, it, it's a terrifying moment because you just never know when it's going to happen. It's, you, you can't hide from it. Someone could say something and boom, unless I think it's a great tagline for the film, shut up or die. And we can't not say things, but if we do say things, we run that risk. There's another kind of telling moment, too, when Sydney ends up getting a phone call. She's been trying to get a hold of her kids, and she mentions at one point that it's the weekend that her ex-husband has her kids and that her ex-husband will turn off his cell phone. So she feels completely cut off now from her children. But when she does finally get them on the phone, she just unleashes this stream of terms of mm. endearments. It's just as many sweethearts and sweeties and darlings and all these kind of things. And that's also, I think by that time, Lorelai has been infected, but it's just like, oh my God, lady, they told you not to do that. You know, just stop doing <laughs> that. It's like, just set you on edge hearing her talk right. to her children. You know, it's just like, no, 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 don't, don't be nice. Basically just, just stop what you're doing. And it's very clever to me too, as far as, one of the things that Ken reported on outside of the Sunshine Chopper was this attack on this uh, medical clinic, this uh, clinic run by Dr. Mendez. And Dr. Mendez actually ends up showing up in the story, and it's right around the time that Laurel Ann is infected, and he's there to be the expert and to explain to us some of these things. And I love his addition into the story, just that he kind of takes the place of Laurel Ann for a little while, because once she ultimately self-destructs, we still have this three-person structure going on, but now we've got Dr. Mendez in that structure instead of Laurel Ann. And the way that he kind of replaces her and then them, you know, speaking to one another and eventually writing to one another and figuring out that maybe they should switch to other languages. And Dr. Mendez is definitely fluent in another language. And him sitting there speaking to himself and coming up with all these things, and he's so excited. It's hilarious because he is probably saying some very rational things, but the way that he's saying it and saying it in a different language, he seems like a crazy person, you know, just because you can't understand what he's saying. It's just like, oh my God, you know, this is amazing when you hear he's just going through and talking out all this logic and he's super excited about it. But I'm like, oh my God, this, this guy seems like a maniac. You know, they should put him down right now. <laughs> I was going to ask you, because I mean, as you've already gone and indicated, he comes into the story and his role is very much that of exposition. And I mean, look, you know, I can't think for a moment how they could have done it any other way, but I'm almost wondering whether it was too convenient for him to come in and say, ah, right. Ah, it's the language. It's this, this is what's infecting. And oh, yes, I've seen this. The, the she's gonna, she's gonna self-destruct. And I'm just wondering if it was maybe a little bit too expository. I mean, look, I, otherwise, I, I can't think of another way to do it. And it, it didn't take me out of the story at all. It's just maybe more logically I'm thinking, oh, yeah, maybe that isn't quite perfect. But it didn't sort of take away from it on a, on a visual level or on an emotional level. But I, I'm just not what, quite 100% sure whether that would have been the best way. But I can't think of another way. How, how did you feel about that? Well, I suppose they could have gotten him on the phone and had him broadcast over air, but I think it was good for him to actually see Laurel Ann. And it's funny because it, it kind of 
it takes me back to an episode that we just did a few weeks ago called the Mafu Cage and this whole thing about who's really in the cage. Is it the person in the cage or is it the person outside of the cage trying to get in? And that really feels like a, a very relevant kind of thing when it comes to this because they're trapped inside of the sound booth. And this whole thing of they're in this soundproof world or it's supposed to be soundproof so Laurel Ann shouldn't be really reacting to them. And now really she's in a world without their sound she's in a world without speech just because she's on the outside of the booth and they're not broadcasting so she's not hearing anything so really she seems to be the test subject and this seems like what something that we've seen in a lot of zombie films recently where you know especially like the resident evil films where it's like okay we're going to put these people into these little testing areas and see how they react you know do they need to eat what happens with this happens so, you know, what happens if they eat another zombie or all these kind of things and here we just have her kind of as our test subject and they're monitoring her. So it, it worked for me as far as having him there as this voice of authority uh, and speaking about that. But I guess I could see him kind of phoning it in uh, literally in this case, he could have you know been somebody that they interviewed over the air, but you know, it, it, it worked for me, I suppose it worked as well to me for him to be doing that as for later on, one of the singers who had been at the radio station suddenly showing back up. And it, that didn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense that she would come back to the station or maybe she had never left, but that, that, that was worked. the one who uh, indicated that she'd already contracted the infection. I think towards the end of their singing time saying pra, 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 pra. I think that was her, wasn't it? Yeah. That was her. And I don't think it's any sort of coincidence in 2008 that it was Lawrence and the Arabians was the band that showed up with Tony Burgess being Lawrence, uh, by the way, and uh, them being dressed as these kind of uh, uh, stereotypical Arab people. I was just like, okay, well, that's kind of a, a little um, you know, a nod to modern day terrorism, I believe. And I also noticed, I think it was Tony Burgess, the author of Pontypool Changes Everything. I also think that it's him calling in with that 912 suggestion earlier in the movie as far as something that isn't an emergency but doesn't seem quite right. So you don't want to call 911. So he suggests calling 912 instead, which I actually think is a pretty well, good probably idea. Probably before too long it would be misused anyway. They didn't put enough cheese on my pizza. <laughs> I, I can see uh, that almost sounds like a Simpsons joke, doesn't it? They do that every week. I hear about people that call nine one one for just the most ridiculous mm -hmm. reasons. Actually, uh, uh, now that I've sort of gone and mentioned the Simpsons, I made a note here earlier on while uh, while I was sort of thinking about uh, the use of language and catchphrases. There was a Simpsons episode. I think it might have been the one where Bart uh, gets to have his few minutes of fame on Krusty's TV show by saying, "I didn't do it." And, you know, when he, his 15 minutes of, of Warholian fame are over, uh, the, the final moment of the show has all the characters doing their catchphrase, you know, Barney doing his burp and, and Bar doing Icaramba Ica and Homer saying, oh, and every character doing their, their little thing. And, and now you can go back to just being you instead of a one-dimensional character with a silly catchphrase. Oh! Ay, caramba! I'd mm. hope! Uh. Ha ha! Excellent. If anyone wants me, I'll be in my room. What kind of catchphrase is that? 
they're basically laughing at themselves. They're all, yep, you like us for our catchphrases. That's what this show is known for. It's not just Bart in this, having his 15 minutes of fame. This is what this whole show is often about. You know, we can sell it on the lunch boxes. We can, you know, the kids are saying it in the yard. We've become all pervasive in popular culture with, you know, with people saying, oh, and all the other countless catchphrases that are in the show. And I think that's coming back to this infection of the English language. I mean, I wonder how much, you know, catchphrases are pervasive in um, other other cultures, in the, you know, TV shows, in uh, in other languages. It's me showing my incredible ignorance. But I wonder whether it's specifically an English language thing, American, uh, English, Australian TV shows that have catchphrases that are relying, whether it's a cultural thing or, or, or not. Carrying on the Simpsons idea, I'm immediately thinking of the uh, the the guy in the bee costume from the Mexican right. TV shows, and I'm just like, I bet he has a, a uh, right. catchphrase. Yeah, that's, that's right. I've forgotten about him. Yep, yep. Or like, uh, you know, beat Takeshi from Takeshi's Ta- Castle and some of those amazing Japanese shows. I'm just like, I wouldn't be surprised if they end every, you know, skit with something like that, <laughs> you know, not kind of, you know, and I, did I do that yeah. kind of a thing? <laughs> I always loved when David Letterman had this thing where he tried to create new catchphrases and he had people voting on which catchphrases should be the next catchphrases and he had this whole thing of like i'm a little cupcake baked by the devil i think that one was my favorite and then there was one that was them bats is smart they use radar and i think both of those have entered into my lexicon but uh very few people get them when i when i say those catchphrases unfortunately was that simpsons one was that the same one where marge says hmm a simpsons on a t-shirt who whoever would have thought I, they saw I the day recall. i don't remember <laughs> And that was right around the time when Simpsons bootleg t-shirts were just the thing and having like the worst drawings of the Simpsons. There's actually a group on Facebook that is all about like Simpsons oh, ripoff wow. art. And it, it's pretty amazing. Today. Just because I got it written in here, uh, we, I probably should have brought it up earlier when we're discussing about the three main characters and their rapport with each other. But I, I found it interesting that, um, with uh, Georgina Riley, there's there's a um, I guess there's an exorcist type moment uh, where you know once she can't say things uh, she's she's been banging her head against or she's been throwing herself against the uh, the I was going to say the projection but she's been throwing herself against the radio booth killing herself off and it's really very very terrifying and when she can't get the words out and she can't hear anything it's all over when she does a sort of very green vomity sort of thing like Linda Blair does in The Exorcist. But unlike that, I mean, in The Exorcist, it almost sort of becomes a bit jokey or maybe it has uh, over the years. That's, uh, you know, oh, yeah, that's the green pea soup. And it doesn't seem as terrifying when you watch it nowadays because it's become so much a part of the popular culture. And it was sort of interesting to see here where uh, the Laurel Ann character she does it, but it's in a way it's new and it, it may be paying homage to the exorcist in a way, but it still seems terrifying and it's not at all jokey. I found that really interesting. Yeah, that was very terrifying to me. And the, the thing that also got me during that scene is that the doctor is talking about how every victim of the disease needs to find a victim 
of them, you know, and the way that he talks about she's a victim without a victim. You know, she has no one to uh, kill, basically. And it's just like, oh, wow. So not only does this disease take out the host, but then the host feels it's necessary to go out and kill somebody else. I mean, very much like standard right. zombieism. Once you get infected, you're like, oh, uh, this insatiable thirst or, or hunger for brains, I suppose. But in this one, it's just like, oh, wow, okay. The whole thing about the, the way that they feel the need to attack other people, and they just, it's almost like they're so frustrated by not being able to find the words that they lash out at things. There's only one moment in the film where there, there's something that possibly pays tribute to the standard zombie film. And I'm not necessarily talking about just the, the conversationalists trying to break their way into the studio, but that moment where um, the, uh, the girl and the Lawrence and the Arabians actually attacks Sydney uh, and it looks like she's trying to you know, bite her or bite some part of her. That seems to be sort of like maybe the standard tribute to the trope of you know, zombies basically getting their, uh, getting their fill violently. And it sort of got me to thinking that I wonder whether the story could have done things differently because in the end, the, the threat is not just of having your words taken over, but they wanted to make, they wanted to make this a horror film and ultimately, you know, you have a violent death in a standard horror film. I'm wondering whether there could have been another way that someone met their demise by attacking someone else without it being without it being a physical assault Uh, once again i can't imagine what but it seemed like that was not necessarily a shortcoming but i'm just wondering if there could have been an alternative besides a violent assault like that girl does and it's the one violent assault that we see in the film what I would imagine there's going to be an assault on Dr. Mendez when he runs out of the station and basically pulls the heat off of these guys. You know, they start this whole message going, this whole um, you know, Sydney Breyer is alive thing, and that kind of takes off through the conversationalist realm. But then, you know, at one point he ends up leaving and screaming Sydney Breyer is alive and basically trying to pull these zombies away from the station. And I love that we don't see his death, you know, and you're pretty darn sure right, that right. he dies. And it's that it's such a nice thing. So I agree. You probably could have gotten away without having that one violent thing in here. And, and I, um, I don't think that it was really necessary. I think that it made it scarier that it was a little girl that was attacking rather than a full grown person, you know, kind of reminded me a little bit of Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead with one of the attacks that happens at the beginning of that movie. And then also with the end of his Dawn of the Dead, the way that we're going to end this movie with all of these radio broadcasts. And in this, it's radio as opposed to television that we get a lot of in in, uh, Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. But I don't think it was necessary. It, it was effective, but it wasn't necessarily necessary. And then that kind of takes me to the point where uh, Sydney ends up starting to say the word kill over and over and over again. And that almost seemed like it was more of a, a viral infection than a, a mental infection just because she was the one who was attacked by uh, the, the little kid. So I'm just like, well, I wonder if it did pass through the blood. I don't think it did, but you know, she's the, the person. And I almost feel bad that 
in this movie, both of the victims of the disease that we see are the women, and it ends up being the man who saves the day. Though he kind of saves the day, and it seems like he saves the day. You know, there's a there's a ceasefire that happens when he seems to really kind of reach his pinnacle. He ends up taking, uh, you know, going to the air and trying to basically disassociate words with their meanings. And I appreciated that as being kind of the climax of the film as him taking to the air with Sydney and, you know, throwing out words and trying to give words the meanings that they aren't supposed to have. You went and sent me as part of my research for this uh, podcast, Mike, the, a, a copy of the uh, radio play, the original radio play uh, of uh, Pontypool. And that has, uh, well, Sydney has a, a very different fate in, in uh, the play to what she does in, in the film. I'm wondering whether that was uh, a decision to make, so to give more emphasis to uh, uh, Grant Mazzy's final speech. He has the inspiration to actually go and do this for the love of the good woman. I don't know. Or because she, she does die in uh, the radio play spoiler, but we've already gone and given so many other spoilers. You said a moment ago something about, well, you know, it's, it's a shame that it's the two women who get infected. And it's up to the man to save the day. I sort of don't look at it quite like that because uh, Laurel Ann, to a smaller extent, but certainly Sydney Bride to a large extent, is a very, very strong woman, not someone to be pushed around. And uh, Grant Mazzy is very much damaged goods, licking his wounds. And it's less about, I think, about the man saving the day, but this damaged guy finding his purpose that he can rise above it and he, he's almost seeming oh i'm proud of myself I've, I've, I've worked it out it's less so much of the man woman thing just more like this guy who's had his, his ego wounded which well i guess is a male thing but he's, he's found some purpose that he can that he can save the day and it's less of um, sydney briar uh, saying oh my man has gone and fixed the situation more like Wow, you came to the challenge, you took it up, and yes, you've gone and you've gone and potentially saved it. Although there's some audio that we hear over the closing credits and post credit sequence that make it quite clearly this is not the end of the story. Really, when he takes to the air, that's the only thing he has. He has a microphone and his voice. And that's the only thing he has left at this point. You know, I mean, he does have Sydney still there. Luckily, she does survive this versus the, the audio broadcast. But that's it. You know, he has no weapons. He doesn't mm -hmm. have a gun. He, he, he is this damaged person. And he's trying everything that he possibly can. And there's this whole thing of what you said earlier, shut up or die. And he can't shut up. That's the only thing he has right. is his voice. And I love that that is what he thinks will eventually save everybody is him taking to the air and really trying to help everybody out. And it seems like kind of a, I don't know if it's a, a selfless act, but it seems like the only thing that he can do at that point is to try and help save the world at that moment. I don't think it's completely altruistic because it, he's taken this one approach with Sydney, who he obviously finds he cares for and says, you know, Try, don't try to understand it for what you know. Killer's kiss, or or half a dozen other terms before he hits upon killer's kiss, and yet he's still giving a fairly straight 
understandable monologue to you know whoever's remaining to be listening to the radio when he does sort of go back to the air at the very end of the film and you know he says folks it's not the end of the world it's just the end of another day and he gives that long speech and it all makes sense to all of us rather than saying folks cds are chocolate is cups is paper towels he's he's sort of curing or trying to cure them in a conventional way and I'm not saying that that goes against what a, a sensible convention of what happened in the previous scene is, but he's doing uh, he is doing it in a more conventional way. So he is doing what uh, he, as you say, can do, which is talk. And if nothing else, he's saying, right, well, I found my way around it. You need to find your way around it. So I'm going to give you a speech in uh, with conventional wisdom, but you have to find your way around it. So it's maybe to me less about altruism and just more about him saying, right, I'm my own personal hero and you have to be your own personal heroes as well. So what do you think of that post credit sequence? Well, okay. The first time I watched it, I could not make head or tail of it. And I confess I did go uh, look up a couple of websites to get other people's interpretations of it. And it, I, I liked one thing in particular that I read. And that was to say that in, uh, as their world evolved, it, it was not just language that had become infected. It wasn't just enough to say nonsensical things like killer's kiss, but they had to really, truly change their world and they take on different identities. So for those of you who maybe haven't gone and watched the film, there's this uh, black and white that becomes color sequence and we see uh, Grant and Sydney in in some little bar somewhere and he's no longer wearing the hat and they look like two completely different characters they don't look like who they were the rest of the film and they're basically not speaking as themselves so it's not just they've not changed their language they've changed their situation they've changed who they are and it's nonsensical to us as viewers who've watched the characters go through the rest of the film but they, they, it's the way how they can talk to the, each other and make sense of their situation. And I love two things about the very, very last three seconds of that sequence. And that, it, you know, she, um, she goes and calls him baby, which is a term of endearment. And he says, shh. And then the, the very thing, end of the film is it says fin, the, the French for end rather than the end. So paying, uh, paying heed to the notion in the film that you should be speaking French in, uh, uh, in uh, well, it's, it's technically it's Ontario rather than Quebec. But I really love that sort of combination. Of, it goes back to what we do know from the film of him saying, no, you still can't use this term of endearment and the end is in French. Uh, so I love how it's evolved. It's evolved from language to situational. At least that, that's the notion that I read, and it seemed to make sense to me. I love the moment in the film when their broadcast is interrupted by the, this French broadcast that kind of comes over the emergency system. And they give the message, and then they translate it into uh, – Laureline translates it from French into English, and then Grant reads it on the air. And I love how the last sentence is, do not translate this message. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have a – 
uh, a big laugh out loud moment, and that's not an LOL moment. I, I, I guess that's one thing that we can say about this film as well. We haven't possibly mentioned is that it does have those humorous moments. It, it, there's there's a lot of terrifying stuff in there, and uh, the music and the situations are very scary, and yet it is not without a sense of humor. It's it's not like a a zany moment. We're not talking about Return of the Living Dead type of horror comedy. It's not that sort of thing. It's just a little bit of uh, in even in these most terrifying moments, you can find something you can find something that'll break up the tension just a little bit. It's not a it's not a horror comedy. It's just a horror that is very smart and is aware of itself and knows that if it's all terrifying all the time maybe it loses uh, some of that scary aspect and so all right we've gone and brought you down a little tad now we're going to bring the terror back so we're starting from here and building up the tension you can't sort of plateau and then uh, expect people to keep on being scared I, I thought that was very clever also the lawrence and arabians scene was was uh, very very funny you know uh, with grant is holding out his uh, mobile for his, his uh, manager to hear. So you hear this, you see this, uh, or you, you can't see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you hear that. Right. Okay. Fuck you, Rick. Yeah, we talked about uh, how uh, Sydney kind of takes the rug out from uh, under Grant when she reveals that the Sunshine Chopper is just, you know, uh, Ken Lomi and his Dodge Dart. And then later on, when uh, after Ken dies, or we hear his death, I should say. We don't know for sure if he does. But And then uh, Grant starts to mourn him, and she turns around and says, oh, yeah, Ken was a pedophile. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, what are they doing? They're not making it easy for the viewer. They certainly aren't. No, no. Every time you think you're supposed to feel sympathy for a situation, she's just like, nope, nope, don't do it. I mean, it is, it's very gallows humor, I have yes, to say. very much. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with director Bruce McDonald, and the second is with writer Tony Burgess, and we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek on. 
Found Item Clothing has everything to proudly display your nerd love, from Star Wars to Star Trek, from TMNT to BTTF. From S to XXL. And with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wider range of costumes, from Snake Plissken to the Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude and everything in between. And everything in between. Visit founditemclothing.com today. Before it's too late. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. You and Adam McGoin, you've known each other for a long time. Did you go to school together? No, I met Adam. Uh, he, uh, I went to film school at Ryerson, which is a downtown Toronto, and Adam went to U of T, a much more higher uh, academic uh, institution. So I met Adam first when I was a camera assistant on one of his short films, and then I really got to know him as an editor when Adam did his first couple of movies. I helped show him how to use the editing machine, I think, on the first feature and helped him cut out the flash frames. And uh, next to family viewing and speaking parts, he employed me to be an editor. He didn't. He, was, he came more from writing and theater, so the filmmaking stuff was a bit sort of new to him. And I loved editing. And so, yeah, so we got to know each other and we're still good friends. What is your background? I know that you know, music, of course, plays a huge role in so many of your films. Were you a musician when you were growing up? Yes, I was a very bad musician. I've always loved music and uh, I hack away at three chord guitar and a little piano. Uh, a lot of friends are musicians. So I think it's if I was uh, had any real any ability at all, I think I probably would have uh, slipped into the music world. But uh, no, unfortunately, I have not been able to kind of make a, a go of it as a musician. But I still love seeing live music and listening to music and musicians are my heroes. So uh, I, I'm always attracted to stories um, that have musical components or documentaries or musical themes like Highway 61 or Hardcore Logo and these sorts of things. 
And the great thing about film is that even if it's not a musical subject, you get to work with composers doing scores and you know all that sort of thing. So I, I still get to kind of be near musicians in this business. What made you decide to get into the filmmaking? Probably zombies had a big part of it. I remember in grade eight seeing Night of the Living Dead at the Albion Mall in, in Rexdale, which is a northern northwestern suburb of Toronto, and we were just so flabbergasted by this kind of black and white you know, movie that looked like it was made by a farmer without really any movie stars. We'd never really seen a movie like it. We had only ever seen movies from Hollywood. And this had a very different effect on us, I think, just because it seemed so real, seemed so unsort of uh, not from the, the usual manufacturing plant out of Hollywood. It just seemed so bizarre. And so and it, I think I had a, sort of a deeper effect on it because it didn't, we didn't feel it was like a movie. It just seemed like it, it was a document of some sort. So in an attempt to sort of emulate that, I think my uncle had a Super 8 camera and uh, we decided it sort of gave us a, a lot of power because um, we thought, wow, I mean, there's maybe we could do something like that because it didn't seem so far removed from perhaps what our efforts might look like being Canadian guys, you know, mo- you know, uh, thousands of miles from Hollywood. And so so we ended up uh, doing our own very suspect, not a knockoff of the story, but it was basically we made a kind of epic Super 8 movie about our high school being attacked by zombies and uh kind of shot it over weekends and got our friends in it and teachers it became quite an epic and we screened it after school and we made posters and the cool kids came and suddenly i was cool for about five minutes and so it was that was the beginning i think of my movie making endeavor and it was just a fun social amazing thing to do and i just been lucky enough to keep at it well, it sounds like you're really embracing that kind of DIY ethos even back then. Kind of, you know, because uh, I didn't really come from a family of artists or filmmakers or anything like that. Uh, there was nobody in my circle or sphere that was remotely connected to the arts. And so it was really, until film school, it was you're really out there sort of on your own and just making it up. You would sometimes go to the library and read about Robert Altman and Stanley Kubrick and these kind of gods there uh, be inspired to know that the films, in fact, were really made by humans. Um, it became a fascinating study for me to kind of understand that, you know, films were made up of technicians and designers. And it was quite a quite an eye opening, amazing thing. And even in school, I was attracted to like the experimental guys. Because they just would use a Bolex and, uh, you know, out of focus, you know, whatever. It was not about big production. It was about just sort of doing it. And uh, so we became big fans of, in film school, big fans of people like um, Bruce Bailey and Michael Snow and Bruce Elder and Hollis Frampton, Hollis, uh, Mike, uh, yeah, all the sort of 70s experimental guys because they were just making these, they seemed like punk rock. They were just like these crazy ass, weird, beautiful, unknowable kind of movies. And it just was simply the, by the fact that we could do something like that too with, like, you know, two or three, you know, yourself and a Bolex and uh, a couple of rolls of film and somebody that worked in a laboratory to process it for free. 
so many of your films, when I think of them, especially when I think of uh, you know Highway 61, very open, uh, you know, road movies kind of thing. And then with Pontypool, it felt like such a difference as far as you know one location and just really being trapped in there. Was that your first one where you just kind of limited yourself to one location like that? I think so. You know, it was um, it was really a, a terrifying prospect to kind of go into that basement. I guess, you know, when you're starting out, uh, whether in filmmaking or in life, there's that kind of the call of the road or the, you know, you want to leave home, you want to go out there and see things and experience things. So, you know, the, the genre of the road movie really was appealing to me on many levels other than the, you know, the tradition, just the experience of going places. And it's sort of a cheat in a way, the road film, because no matter, no matter uh, if nothing is happening, you always feel like you're going somewhere. You know, you're always, there's landscape moving by and there's the feeling of propulsion and narrative movement forward. So it was a great, for me anyway, it was a great genre to start in because it really helped me understand, you know, beginnings of the understanding of how, how narrative kind of works and the demands and all that sort of stuff. So when we got to the basement, it was, I couldn't rely on that anymore, that kind of, you know, almost easy, free uh, feeling of momentum and narrative push that a road movie gives you just naturally by its nature. And suddenly, yeah, I can't, and I think it's probably the first really real chamber piece that we ever did. I mean, so it was very daunting. And so I had, you know, our cinematographer, Miroslav, who was a trusted ally we'd done he'd done roadkill on highway 61 and dance me outside with me so we'd worked a lot together so it was really great to have a guy like him helping me making that transition i guess between the road and the and the sort of the studio in a way now i read that you bought the rights for potty pool with a chocolate egg i did yes that's that's funny yeah, how did that come about? I remember that uh, I had a friend of mine who was a, he worked in publishing, like a very small press, and I knew his wife. His wife is a sort of terrific writer and poet named Lynn Crosby. She's quite a quite a character, and her nice boyfriend at the time, Michael Holmes, worked for this press. And you know, I'm hanging out with Lynn and Michael, and he says to me one day, he says, "Bruce, we're putting we're having this." Uh, book launch uh, of our new slate and there's this one book I think you, you know maybe you dig as maybe possible movie project it's sort of a zombie thing and I know you like zombies and he told me about it and so I got the, the, the this, you know he gave me an advanced copy before their little party at a rock club now, I think they're having it at the Elma Combo so I read this book about a week before I went to this, and I just loved it. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I remember on my way, I was walking down College Street on my way to this party. I, I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. I'll see my friends Lynn and Michael, and I'll get to meet the guy, this this mysterious fellow named Tony Burgess, who wrote it. He, apparently, he was going to be there and do a reading, as, as often happens at these things. And I thought, gosh, there'll be other people there. Maybe other people have read this book, and pretty smart. Somebody's bound to snap up the rights to this. So I thought, I, I don't want that to happen. So I popped into the local uh, convenience store as I'm buying some smokes and I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll make a symbolic uh, option payment and I grabbed uh, one of these little chocolate eggs I have in the front counter. So when I was introduced to Tony, you know, he talked and right away, you know, hit it off. He's a very personable guy, funny guy, loves music. 
within not a long time, I, I sort of pitched him. I said, hey, how about I option your book? And uh, I said, I don't have a lot of pocket cash right now, but I can I can secure if I can secure your, you know, your yes with this offering here of this chocolate egg that would make me very happy. So he thought that was pretty funny. And, uh, uh, he said, yes, he took the egg and it eventually worked into a proper contract and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we became very, very good friends, me and Tony. So yeah, that's a funny, I have forgotten about that. That's funny. Um, how did you guys kind of work out the idea of, of translating this, um, I mean, I've read the book a couple of times and it's not the easiest book in the world to read. No, it's crazy. Yeah, it's very crazy. How did you go from that into, and I I think there was a radio play in there before it was a Mm -hmm. film. How how did that? Yes, it's a long, long tale. I'll try to give you the short version of it. Um, Often when you option a book, the few experiences that I've had with different book authors we tend and we often say, well, hey, it's your book. If you want to try the adaptation uh, into a screenplay, well, you should, uh, I think, get first crack at it. And often they don't because they're like, well, you know, I've sort of done with it. I've already spent a couple of years or more writing this thing. And I, I don't know if I'm the really the right person to bring this the objectivity that, you know, a good screenplay needs into kind of compressing the book and finding, you know, maybe that should be done by a different mechanic. And, uh, but in this case, Tony said, yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I, I'd like to take a crack at that. He was a big movie lover. And uh, so part of the long odyssey of this adaptation has been compounded by, A, the crazy book and which, which element to take and what to leave out. Uh, the idea that Tony was a sort of a first-time screenwriter. And screenwriting is a very kind of very particular and peculiar craft. I always liken it to the idea of making, you know, it's like, it's like, it's more like making the specs for a Maserati than it is writing a poem because, you know, no matter how beautiful it looks, it still has to start when you turn it over. So there's a lot of mechanics involved with the screenplay and, and, you know, I think part of the journey has been Tony's growing respect of the, you know, the art of the screenplay. So, uh, all that to say, off we got going, and and a few people kind of came in to help help him and just advise. And so the original it took quite a while, but we finally ended up with a kind of a, you know a, we took a few elements out of the book, which is essentially the central idea of the English language has been invent, you know infected with a virus, and there's a character in the book who is named Les Reardon, who is a recovering kind of addict, I guess, and he is house sitting a farm in. Pool. And as he uh, tries to stay clean and is going through his recovery, this language virus breaks out and all hell breaks loose. So that, you know, and we thought, okay, that's a good basis for a story. And so we, we, we went at it for quite some time and ended up with a very, you know, still pretty convoluted and, and, and thick script. And, and at some point we decided, well, we should, I think it's just too much script for one script. So we because it kind of this story ended with Les ending up in kind of zombie rehab, uh, where they the government or the after the kind of the whole virus uh, peaks and, and and peters out, uh, the zombies are rounded up by government forces and people and they're kind of rehabilitated to learn how to speak normally again and to you know try to reintegrate these these poor bastards into society 
and I, that was always my one of my favorite parts of the book. This kind of weird zombie rehab where you're 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 trying to be taught to act normal again. Anyway, so we. Oh, there's too much. We split that into two scripts. We thought, oh, maybe this is like a two-part deal. Anyway, in the middle of all that, we got I get a call from CBC Radio of all places, and they're looking for somebody to make a radio play. And we're like, oh, I don't know why you're phoning me. I've never made a radio play before. But they said, no, no, we're kind of reaching, trying to reach outside the usual people. We're talking to uh, you know playwrights and some filmmakers and that. And if you're even if you're interested, I said, well, yeah, I guess so theoretically. And he said, you know, we'll commission you. Well, you know, we don't have a lot of money, but we can pay a little something. And then I immediately thought, well, you know, maybe we could slice off a little bit of the Pawnee Pool. That's such a fun idea for, you know, a talk radio show or something. And I asked Tony if if if, if he'd be interested in writing a radio play for CBC. And he's like, hell yeah, you know, because he's a pretty prolific writer. He writes novel, other, you know, lots of other novels and things. So he just... uh you know, imagined this, which we now know, I guess, as Pontypool, this first movie. And we're still kind of work, working towards making the thing that we started with, with this whole other story. So it's it's a long and funny... Uh, so eventually, it's now, in the ideal world, we'll have three little companion pieces, three little movies, Pontypool, and the next one being Pontypool Changes, and the third being Pontypool Changes Everything, which is the name of Tony's book. My dad always said, finish what you start. So we're still working on getting to that finish line. What was your collaboration like with Tony when you were working on the, the radio drama? Uh, super fun, because by that time, we'd, we'd really dug in. We'd, we'd spent already at least probably three or four years easy, maybe more on this, you know, trying to orchestrate these, these screenplays. You know, it's, people would be shocked to know how much time is spent. Maybe not every time out, but uh, the screen the screenplay for the radio drama happened. I would say within a couple of weeks, like from the to- time Tony, uh, I said, "Hey, would you be interested in a radio play?" You know, the thing, of, and we decided, "Well, what's a radio?" Now, yeah. So our, I remember our first conversation was kind of like radio plays, radio plays. Mm. I didn't really have any much experience or much knowledge really of radio. The only radio play I already knew was the Orson Welles radio, famous radio broadcast in 1936 which he, uh, the Mercury Theater performed on, you know, I think a CBS or some big, big radio station out of New York where he did an adaptation of the H.G. Wells story where the Martians invade New Jersey. And this created a, it's quite a sensation because they, it was set in a radio station and they start to get reports in of the Martians' ships approaching Earth and landing. And then, you know, I always loved that story just for the, story itself and then for the sensation that it created by you know of the listeners so essentially we just stole the idea and tony says yeah yeah well why don't we do something like that for pawnee pool we'll just set it in the radio station and all the stuff in the script that we've been working out in this the movie that we're still trying to make that we've been trying to make for many years we'll just have it phoned in or we'll just uh, experience it through this uh local radio station. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. And we had no intention originally of shooting this. It was just like, oh, let's make a radio play and maybe that'll help bring attention to this movie that we are still working on and trying to get the script right. So anyway, Tony delivered this in like record time in like a couple of weeks. And I sent it to the guy at the radio station. He goes, well, this is really good. I got a couple of notes, but yeah, I'm in. This is, this is, this works. There's like, 
you know, three, four characters and it's very doable and we can actually record it in the radio station or we could go out to some real radio station. Anyway, he was very excited and I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is going to be really fun. So the guy, Antonio was, you know, really jazzed by the whole idea. So we're talking one day and Tony said, well, you know, if you're going to, if they're going to pay for the actors and they're going to pay for the studio and they, they've paid me and they'll give you a little bit to direct these actors to record it on radio, why wouldn't we just shoot it with like a a small video camera and make a little movie of this? I was like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Why wouldn't we? <laughs> you know, because it's sort of, you just, it's almost like a behind the scenes of the recording of a radio show. And then the, the radio guys, like Greg Sinclair, uh, CBC, really fantastic guy and a really smart fellow, was very open to the idea. Said, "Yeah, that that sounds great." And so the the fifty dollar movie, which would have been the price of <laughs> of one of our friends who could operate a camera. And you know, speaking of that DIY thing that you were mentioning earlier, it was like it was that kind of notion of like <clears throat> you getting into getting into things or making the most of what you have. So. You know, and then I re- and then it was kind of like, okay, so we're gonna, this is actually happening. They were, you know, we I thought of uh, McCaddy because I'd worked with him on some a, f- a number of different things, and he was one of my favorite actors. And I thought, well, he's got a great voice, and blah blah blah. And and it's it's funny to be on a moving train sometimes because people are very attracted by that. And I was at some at the Horseshoe Tavern on Queen Street one night, and my friend said uh, I ran to this guy who's kind of a character I'd seen at film festivals stuff. His name's Jeffrey Coughlin. who ended up being the, one of the producers. He says, "What you working on?" He says, "Ah, well, I'm making a movie in a month or a couple of months, uh, a zombie movie in a radio station." He goes, "Oh yeah, tell me more." So I told him a little bit about it. And he says, "Well, how much are you shooting it for?" I said, "Well, I'm probably I don't know five grand or you know fifty bucks, whatever I can." Sort of put together. He goes, well, how much, how much would you want if you, you know, if you could have a little bit more control? If you wanted, you know, how much? You know, I said, well, you know, it'd be nice to actually shoot it in more than two days or one day. Be nice to have a couple of weeks, or be nice to, you know, have a nice camera to shoot on. It'd be nice to have a musical score. You know, just the basic shit. So I said, you know, you know, if I had a half a million or something like that, that would be kind of awesome. And he says, well, you know, he says, let me, let me go get you that money. I'm like, I was like, Jeff, you're just a drunk festival goer who I'm talking to in a bar who's even more drunk than I am right now. He goes, I know, I know. But anyway, to make a long story short, three months later, we're shooting with like a little bit more than half a million bucks and old Jeff. Pulled a few irons out of his crazy little fire and found some guy who knew a guy who financed the whole thing. So it was, it was one of those stories. It's, it, was, it still amazes me that it, that that happened. I mean, we probably would have shot it anyway for fifty bucks, but the fact that we had, you know, relatively you know small professional crew and were able to do this thing still amazes me. So yeah, that's that's a kind of a story. You know how it came to be. The radio station itself, the set itself. There's a lot of elements that seem very, very true to real radio. Did you have like a consultant that you worked with or were you just familiar with how radio stations were or how was that designed? That was uh, a large part was our our, uh, Greg Sinclair who worked at CBC Radio. Um, And he was just great at talking through like when we were uh, working the script, you know, he was very familiar with things like the relationship between the producer and the and the 
host or the other people that might be involved in a in a talk show or a radio show and some of the kind of just the kind of the mannerisms and some of the lingo that they would use and he, you know gray also says well it doesn't you know to have a radio station doesn't really take much so we had considered the idea of shooting at the cbc studios which were pretty nice but almost too nice it was like well it's supposed to be some small town but we found uh we did some research we we walked you know we we researched we went around some small towns and looked at the radio stations and you know it was it was not you know it was kind of like a glass booth somewhere you know so there wasn't a lot of so it was encouraging it was like a lot of uh and we realized oh this could be a kind of a mobile thing so the only thing we really built was uh once we we found this old church basement in this neighborhood neighborhood called the Junction in Toronto and our designer designer Leah Carlson from the research that she had done in these different uh, small town radio stations and people were all you know we also Tony visited these stations and would talk to the people and they were everybody was very uh, gracious and very open and wanting to give us uh, ideas about you know, talk show host type people or producer people. So Tony learned a lot and put a lot of that nuance in, I think, from some of the research that we did. Sometimes the two of us would go and we'd be guests on a radio show. And then after we would talk to them about just, just questions we had about, you know, procedure and lingo and things like that. So it was a fun movie to research and people were very forthcoming in their wanting to help. Because radio, uh, you know, small town radio, it's not... I don't know. It's uh, has a glamour to it, but it's not like uh, TV glamour. It's a different kind of person. That was how we essentially built a glass box in an old church basement in a neighborhood in Toronto, and that became our set. Now, I remember from the book that Grant Mazzy's kind of this blowhard, disgraced uh, disc jockey. Right. When it came to the character in the movie, how did you approach that, and how did McHattie approach that characterization? Steve is a is a like a lot of terrific actors will enjoy the research stage of their you know researching a part. And he mentioned he's he spent a lot of time in New York as a as a young actor as a theater actor in the late seventies and eighties, and lived in Topanga Canyon in California during his uh, time as an actor down there. So he he would he referenced you know there was a guy Don Imus who is an American radio host that I wasn't that familiar with, but he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the guy, you know, and he, I think, I'm not sure where the hat came from, but I think one of these radio jocks, I don't know if they wore a cowboy hat or he was just riffing on me, but he liked the idea of of the fallen man. He liked the idea of the disgrace. I think there was Don Imus, too, who I can't remember the event, but, you know, somebody like him or like him uh, went through some public humiliation. I'm not sure what the circumstances were, but that kind of what intrigued him was the fall from grace of that fallen man who's, you know, one time the big voice of the big town and now is stuck in this shitty basement <laughs> in a tiny town of Pontypool. So, you know, Steve likes to draw from uh, real life people that he finds and then I think channeled you know talk spent a lot of time with Tony uh, Greg Sinclair was very helpful as well uh, just talking about certain things Steve was very particular about 
you know, how even things like how he would move to the mic and how he would move away and, and, uh, yeah, just hit the rhythm of, of his voice. He, he's a really, really terrific actor and, uh, it was a real delight to see him. And he, as soon as he read the script, he was like, oh, I totally have to do this because it is a bit of an actor's dream, I think, part, this sort of egotistical fallen man who suddenly is given this kind of great gift of uh, a crisis to be the, the the saving voice, I suppose, or the, the voice of the community to kind of help get through this. I have to say, the way that the film is shot, I mean, Stephen McCaddy's face is this beautiful landscape, just the cragginess and just the, the expressions that he gives. I mean, every shot in the film just looks terrific, especially those close-ups of him and his reactions. Wow, thank you. That's, uh, that's nice to hear. We were talking earlier just about the terror of me going in there and making a feature-length film about a guy in a glass box. So Miroslav Bazak, who is our... Uh, he's still a good pal. He's he's now sh- uh, one of the things he's shooting. He's been working on the strain for uh, Guillermo del Toro for the last little while. And bizarrely, he told me that like, Pontypool is one of Guillermo's favorite movies. So I thought that was pretty. That's a nice feather in our little horror cap. So Miro and I spent you know some time just talking through the progression of lenses. We looked at uh, you know a few other great filmmakers that were specialists in a way of, of dealing with sort of chamber pieces, especially uh, Polanski, who was a fellow countryman of Miroslav. Miroslav's from a place called Łódź in Poland. And uh, Polanski, of course, is a Polish uh, national. So a lot of his films we were really appealing. Films like The Tenant, like Repulsion, Death and the Maiden. Many of his films take place in very restricted geographical places. And so it looks effortless when you see it, but you really begin to appreciate the design. So the questions that we were dealt with in terms of trying to answer or trying to chart out through the through our progression is when does the camera move? When does it not move? When are we on a long lens? When are we on, when are we on a wide lens? Is there is when are we loose? When are we tight? So all you know all those things were. Yeah, I'm disgusted, and uh, it's an exciting. Uh, even with those kind of tiny, those limitations, there was a great freedom in charting out the design. So it was, it was it was surprising to me of how many decisions can be made, how many choices are still offered up to you as the director and as the, the visual design team in that kind of very restrictive setting. So it gave me an enormous respect for those filmmakers that can do that so well, like uh, Altman and Polanski and, um, you know, I'm sure you could name a bunch of people too that I'm not thinking of right now, but it's a great learning experience for me. Well, yeah, you mentioned The Tenant and one of the other ones that came to mind was Repulsion and just the way that Deneuve is in that little room for so much of the film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, there's a, a well, there's a film recently that was shot in Toronto called, which I sadly have not seen yet, called The Room, which is all set in a room. I was very curious to see that, just because now I have this great, great knowledge and great respect for the, you know, the uh, the imagination and the the smart work of filmmakers that can make films in these sort of tight quarters. 
And I love just the very few times that you will allow the camera to escape and go outside and this whole importance of the outside to the characters who are locked in, in the radio station. Yeah, I think one of the few times we, is when they're reading that list of the dead, I think, or the dead. We just ran around Tony's hometown of uh, Stainer, Ontario, and we photographed his neighbors. <laughs> but yeah, and these kind of beautiful, spooky portraits. Uh, there was a f- weird book. I don't know if you've ever seen it called Wisconsin Death Trip. Do you know that book? Oh, yeah. God, I haven't thought of that in forever. Yeah, it was sort of weirdly one of the inspirations for those black and white portraits somehow. Not a direct connection, but a kind of like this kind of country, gothic, black and white, you know, portraiture, which we found really disturbing and really, really beautiful. So, yeah, that was that was in there, too. Now, of course, the sound design and the music for this were so key. I mean, you, I could, I don't, but I could turn off the picture and just listen to this. Well, how did you work with your sound designers on this film? Just, you know, I'm really paying attention to the to the rhythms and the the language. Uh, you know, we were lucky, you know, when you're in a small space like that, you know, things are generally recorded really well. You know, special attention was of course given to the microphone that that people were speaking into, just the kind of the background ambiences and those sorts of kind of the escalation of that. Yeah, I mean it was just very uh a fun sound movie like the the sound of the voices coming in over the telephones so the sound team had a had a really fun time because they understood that so much of it was uh going to be their work or their um yeah their textures and things so it was relatively you know because it was designed well and it was not all over the place it would, it came together uh quite well all right here's a real nerdy question for you were those mics live, or were you shooting with uh, you know booms? Good question. Uh, we did both actually. We had uh, we had the live mic, and we had uh, a boom as well. So boom picked up a little bit more of the room, I think, and it just gave. So you know they were probably doing things in the sound design and mix it. I still don't really know exactly what they were doing. <laughs> I, but to have that kind of choice was really great and just for perspective and for creating this, you know, yeah, perspective and, and cool stuff. So, yeah. The musical soundtrack for it is just, I love it. it especially when it gets just so ominous and it almost becomes a character unto itself. Yeah. Um, that went off, uh, seemed to go off very well, and uh, I just got a call from our composer not long ago. They're putting out a vinyl. He wants to put out a vinyl uh, track of the score. So um, that would be yeah. So and I, what was nice about that, in a way, is that it's rare. I, I've always been attracted to um, sort of pop soundtracks and road movies. It was always um, you know pop songs on the radio. Uh, that sort of thing taking you down the road and it was um, fun to have you know for me anyway this uh, a score that uh, took you through the movie yeah I wanted to, to to go back to you talked about how um, you know I know Don Amos is a big fan of the cowboy hat and McCaddy wearing that with you why the cowboy hat and how long have you been sporting that <laughs> 
Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, not long before that movie was made, I think. Uh, I remember, I'm trying to think. I've never really, you know, up until then, I never really wore a hat. But I remember I was hired to go and work on this uh, crazy TV series called Lex. And it was about these people that flew around in outer space and blew up planets. And because it was a German co-production, they had to shoot a couple of episodes in Berlin. So I was the guy that lucked out and I got to go to Berlin to shoot. This is my first visit to outer space. And before I left, my niece, Madeline, who was around seven or eight at the time, for some reason decided, because whenever I go away, I'd always send them postcards and stuff like that. So I told her that I was going away to work for a while and she thought that I should have a hat when I went away. I don't know why, but so we went shopping on Young Street and we ended up in this hat store and for she picked out a cowboy hat. She said, well, I think you should wear this. So I tried it on and to kind of please her, I was like, all right. I felt pretty weird because I never wore a hat before, but I thought, well, I'm going to Berlin where nobody knows who the fuck I am, so I can kind of be whoever I want. So I thought, all right. And I remember there was a film by Vim Vendors called The American Friend, and it was about uh, Dennis Hopper, who was this kind of art dealer, and he, wore, he, he's, he wears a cowboy hat, and that was one of my favorite movies. And I thought, I'm going to Berlin, so I immediately thought, thought of that movie and Dennis Hopper. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be cool like Dennis Hopper, and I'll be the cowboy in Berlin. And what I found on the set was that it was very practical. It was... Uh, People right away knew where you were because as the director, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people on the set and uh, can be, you know, sometimes it's really smooth, sometimes it's chaotic. But I found that the wearing the hat, people instantly knew where you were and it kind of saved maybe a few minutes a day. I'm not sure, but it seemed to be very practical. So that's kind of how it started. And, and so now whenever I shoot, I tend to wear a hat. It's actually practical because it keeps the sun out of your face. It, people know where you are. If you tilt it down, that's when people know don't talk to him because he's thinking about something. Or I don't know it's sort of fun. I, you know, it's a weird thing. I've never been a hat guy, and then and then I would miss it when I wasn't wearing it. I mean, it's just a weird. It's a weird thing, I guess. Uh, so I still, I just got a new hat. I'm here in Calgary, so I thought, oh, I have to get a new hat start shooting on Monday. So I'll wear it sometimes just in civilian life just because I get used to it, but it's mostly for shooting. It's like how people wear their, yeah, people wear their baseball caps when they shoot, right? Or they they have certain things that give them focus or comfort when they're shooting. And then I guess for me, it's this hat. Could be worse. You could be wearing a three-piece suit like uh, Sam Raimi whenever he shoots. Right. <laughs> well, he's got the coin to have a nice tailor, I guess, you know? Yeah. That's pretty classy. Does he really wear oh, yeah. a suit? Does he really wear yeah. a suit? Three-piece. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty good. It might only be two-piece. I might be giving him a little too much credit. Right, right. Well, that's classy. That's like those photographs you see of... Hitchcock sets where even the camera team is wearing like a black suit and tie and in the 50s they were even on location they'd be often wearing these little maybe it was mostly studio but yeah it's kind of it's kind of nice to to swank it up a little bit what was the reaction of the film when it came to the the French audiences, because it's interesting how language plays such an important role in the film and especially the way that the whole idea of the French language enters into it. 
Well, I don't know so much about... Tony keeps me posted on reactions and reviews and all this sort of stuff, but I do remember that the French, the French French, who are... Uh, Tony is a big fan of in terms of uh, being a fan of Jean Genet and books like Our Lady of the Flowers, French Surrealists. Uh, he studied linguistics and semi semiotics in university. I guess this is where this all comes from. And I must say, it gets a little... Sometimes for me, I, I, I try to educate myself as best I can in signs and meaning and semiotics and all these really smart, fascinating French sort of uh, semioticians and philosophers. But this movie really appeals to those people in a big way. Uh, Tony has sent me messages and uh, things that he's gotten or he's come across uh, out of France people from the Sorbonne and people from studying semiotics and studying language. And I just recently got a call from Chicago, a, a, a professor of something, maybe philosophy, was uh, inviting me to come and participate in a Q&A with his students in Chicago, like all expenses paid. He was such a huge fan of the film. So it, it's a fun movie for uh, semioticians and people that study signs and meaning and language and uh, it's a real playground for that sort of thing. So the And then the French people get a kick out of it or the English people just as much, especially Canadian people that all study French in high school and then drop it at grade 11 and then feel bad. So this, this kind of pokes fun at that kind of uh, lackadaisical let's learn a second language and uh, in this case, it's it could be life-threatening if you don't have your second language in pocket. Yeah, I do love the uh, kind of pidgin French that they're speaking uh, throughout the the end of the film. Well, it's funny because Tony has told me, and he's, he's, he's reported this a number of times, he said it's become in probably 12 to 15 cities, some big, some small, Chicago, Kansas City, um, the real town of Pontypool, Edinburgh, uh, people put on plays, uh, like theater plays. And so in some places, in, say, Wales, instead of French, it'll, it will be the Gaelic uh, nat native tongue. Or in San Diego, it'll be Spanish. In France, I'm not sure what it would be. Maybe it's English that they don't speak. But it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm surprised that just that, that people have picked up on this and, and, and some of it's sort of more community theater, some of it's quite legitimate, but there have been a number of these projects and they always kind of contact Tony and he, he and I just give him permission. I say, yeah, do whatever you want and send us the, you know, send us the poster or send us the, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to see it taken on a life of its own. It's interesting how political language can be. Of course, the personal is political, but just the whole idea of, you know, I know that there are separatists in Canada, and then the whole idea of in the States is this, you know, why should we learn Spanish? People coming to the U.S. have to learn English and just this kind of nationalism thing. It's got to be so different for Canadians, though, where you have two official languages. Oh, yeah. And this idea of the English language, which is this sort of dominant imperial language in a way in the world, suddenly being infected and having to rely back to your sort of native tongues, whether it's French or 
in different countries, it's a different thing. And it, you know, sort of, it, it sort of pokes fun at that imperialism. It, it sort of brings up that debate again because, you know, French or any language, language is power, language is identity, and language is uh, information. And, you know, I, as a Canadian, I'm very aware of the language debates in Quebec where they've, you know, they passed legislation in the late 70s, early 80s where, uh, that alienated a lot of English people because they were trying to kind of preserve the French language where everything was had to be in both languages and Canada is a, an officially bilingual country whether you know you're in Quebec or you're Alberta any post office you must speak French so you know this is a country where language is legislated and there's a powerful reason behind that because uh you know, language is power, and, and the two founding countries, I guess, of Canada, other than the native people, you'd be the French, English, and sort of Indian people, but French is still hanging on and still insisting on things and a beautiful language. So it kind of brings up those issues, I guess, the film does, and I don't know exactly what the resolution is or what our ultimate point is, uh, other than to perhaps point at that suddenly when there's an absence of that thing that you rely on so well, this case language or in other cases uh, health or life things get really upside down pretty quick. You seem to transition very easily from film to television and back again what is that like for you though as far as going from one medium to another? Uh, oh, I, I really uh, I love shooting uh, I find it pretty active and social and fun and I'm always learning my craft so I, I really enjoy shooting and being on set making an independent film and making a series television and I'm not taking Game of Thrones here I'm talking you know m- m- medium series television it's like the pace is sort of very similar um, the restrictions are, are similar you know, I've generally worked in uh, feature films of just a few million dollars. I've never been in that other other Tarantino land where you kind of whatever whatever you want you get. So, you know, it's a discipline that you keep learning, good habits and sometimes bad habits. I've come across some really great people, people like Steve McCaddy. I've met on a, I met him at first uh, on a series called Emily of New Moon, where he was shot out in East Coast. And he played with some period drama. So I am fortunate to do different series of whatever kind and whatever genre because the people that I meet on them, the actors or the designers or the DPs or the costume people, there's always, you know, incredible people that end up becoming your allies or your helpers or your associates on independent films. Because we live in a land now where television is becoming much more prosperous and it's harder and harder maybe to make independent films because of the kind of the one-off nature of them, whereas the series is appealing to financiers because of the sort of ongoing nature of it in its most successful form. So, you know, I mean, I prefer movies just because in movies I'm there at the beginning with the chocolate egg, like from the very beginning of the relationship in terms of the scripting or the adaptation right through to what's the poster going to look like. And, and I really enjoy that full spectrum being able to sit in the sound mix and work with the composer and the dialogue editors. Whereas in television, you're more the guest you know, as the director is traditionally 
They come in, they prep, they shoot, they spend a day in the cutting room, and they're off to the next gig. So you don't, you're not really that, unless you become part of a show, or so that's becoming a bit more common in television, which is great. That you, they may have one or two directors do the whole season. So then you're much more part of the, the bigger picture, and that's I think when it's probably a lot more satisfying for the director. Um, because I like that. I like the overall, I like the being connected to the different parts because they all inform each other. Yeah, you seem to uh, have directed quite a bit of um, Queer as Folk, if I remember right. Yeah, that was uh, Sean in Toronto. I think I did three seasons. That was a fantastic bunch of people and uh, pretty fun. And they were, they had a pretty, they were very, pretty prosperous. They had all the toys. So it was a great sense of design. Uh, Gail, who is the leading guy, was a fantastic actor, a really terrific guy, and the supporting cast were all great. And you felt like you were doing something a little, a little special, like you're, you know, it was, I don't know, maybe one of the earlier gay shows or about the gay community, which, so you felt like you're in this other community, other world, and kind of, you know, sending it out into, into middle America. Um, so everybody felt, like they were doing something a little bit special, that there was a bit of a mission there. And yet at the same time, it was good fun and uh, an entertaining show to work on. So can you tell me what you're working on now or about to start work on? Well, right at the present, I'm in Calgary, Alberta. I'm working on a show called Heartland, and we're beginning season number 10. And this is a lovely show about a family with a ranch, and it's about they help horses. So it's a, basically a... I think the ideal audience, I think, for this show is if you're a 13 or 14-year-old girl, I think this perhaps may be your favorite show on the planet. I have gotten my total street cred increased when I ran into my daughter's friends at the local ice cream shop, and they found out I was working on Heartland, and they just couldn't have been more excited. I suddenly became Joe Strummer, you know, for five minutes there in there and you know so so yeah it's a great bunch of people it's really it's really like you're outside and you know uh in the foothills the rockies are are nearby and it's uh it's a little harder than it looks because animals don't often do what you hope they're going to do but uh yeah it's it's a uh, it's super fun so i finished that and in a couple of weeks and then we're working on a independent movie for the fall called Dreamland, and it's also starring Steve McCaddy. After Pontypool, we had such a great time working together, and I work with Steve many times. It's always such a pleasure. But me, Tony, and Steve, and Lisa, who plays in the film as well, at one of the festival screenings of Pontypool, uh, we decided that we should write something else for McCaddy. And I had seen this short film that he had made, as a favor, I think, to a friend, and where he plays uh, sort of older Chet Baker. And it was about the, the, the point of the short film was how did Chet die? Like he knew he fell out a window, but how exactly did he fall out that window? And so I watched this short film where Steve plays Chet Baker, and I was like, oh my God, he is so nailing it. The voice and the singing and the gestures. So we thought, let's write, I don't know, we came up with this sort of bizarre idea, this sort of. Chet Baker-ish, you know, uh, film noir, crime, surrealistic movie that only Tony Burgess could write. 
So that is underway. Uh, the financing is kind of getting some traction, and if we're fortunate, we'll shoot it in Belgium, of all places, in uh, the wintertime. So I just came from a meeting last week with our Belgian producer, our Los Angeles producer, and our Canadian producer. And so we're we're trying to figure out who the supporting cast is. We're looking for a vampire, and we're looking for a guy named Hercules. So, so send us your suggestions. Um, anyway, so we're working on that. It's a really fantastic, yeah. But it's like a you know kind of a lurid, surre- slightly surrealistic crime movie where McCaddy plays both a contract killer and a kind of Chet Baker-ish um, junkie trumpet player. So we're busy, busy cats, you know, their TV helps us, doing TV helps them pay a little, pay for the development of these other independent projects. So it all kind of generally works pretty nice together. Well, I hope you have fun in Belgium. It's a great, great uh, country, despite what Donald Trump says about it. Yeah, I've never visited uh, Belgium. I've been close uh, to the airport in Amsterdam is about as close as I've ever been. But uh, this fellow was really terrific and it seems like there's lots of great opportunities there in terms of the talent and the the places so yeah we're it's always fun to go away and shoot somewhere it's a it's always a great adventure well thank you so much for your time today this has been really great talking to you well i totally appreciate uh mike you kind of taking the time to to chat and we are working on, you know, Pontypool changes. It is coming. It's just uh, things take time, but the script is done and the casting is underway. And it's either, you know, in about a year, I think we'll get at it. But uh, for the for the Pool fans, that uh, the, the project that we started with is hopefully going to be made, and hopefully we won't disappoint. I know you've been a fan of movies for a long time. Oh, yeah. Did I read right that you kind of uh, had a movie tie-in to your juvenile delinquency days, kind of inspired by Straight Time and Clockwork Orange? Uh, that's a bit of a... That was my uh, uh, co-defendant's <laughs> story. <laughs> because we had watched Hard Time, I guess. And, you know, we were playing around with Clark Wilkins a bit and stuff. But no, that was, uh, at the time it was called, I think it was called Wilding or something <laughs> in New York. And it was kind of a performance uh, situationist thing where you would get up in the middle of the afternoon or whenever and go out and uh, completely unravel your life in a matter of an hour or whatever. <laughs> and so we robbed a store. I did it in my... Uh, Mother's blouse with a stolen 10-speed and a pairing knife, I think. And when we robbed the store, the woman, who was terrified, and it became horrible after a while, but 
she uh, uh, recognized both of us from homeroom. <laughs> and so, yeah, we were busted within about 45 minutes. Yeah. But anyway, but that's, yeah, he, he says that it was because of a, uh, influence from those two films, which is, you know, possible, I guess. What the, what the uh, DNC now calls permission structures. When did you decide to start writing? Yeah, I always wrote. I always wrote. Uh, but, but it was always uh, support uh, drawing, because that's what I did originally. And for the first, uh, I guess, 30 years of my life or so, was uh, painting, uh, drawing, painting. And uh, uh, and I used um, writing as support material for it, and uh, and then eventually had to sort of settle down because painting and I didn't agree with each other health wise, and uh, started uh, writing. I guess when I was thirty something, like like to publish. No, I was publishing when I was twenty, I guess. But it was you know crazy random punk scene shit and whatever. So yeah, I've been writing forever. Were you pretty big into the zine scene when it was around? Uh, yeah, I guess. You know, I wasn't. Uh, uh, I sort of predate the zine scene in a bit. In a in a bit, it was chat books and it was, uh, you know, Xerox books and stuff like that. And then when the zine scene was around, I was just sort of like giving them content as opposed to making them uh, friends who were doing zines. And then, you know, but I, but I, I, I'm very much still. Uh, you know, use the, uh, I guess we would call it a DIY uh, mentality, which is to, uh, you know, do it in your own backyard with your own staples. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, anyway, so, yes, yeah, I did, I, I wrote my entire life. Uh, yeah, like obsessively and crazily and without purpose. Tell me about um, how you first got published when it came to ECW Press with the uh, Hellmouse of... Uh... That's a funny story, man. That's a funny story. I was uh, living in this, like, one-bedroom flat, I was working as a telephone psychic, and uh, I just finished a, a degree in semiotics and something else. And, listening. and I was older. Like I was in my mid-30s or early 30s. I had this manuscript. It was just stuff because I, I always had piles of stuff, and was, I wrote constantly. And I'd written this play, and it got funded by the Toronto Arts Council. And I didn't know anything about writing plays. And, so I just sort of used it to uh, live for a while and the money. And uh, this guy who I knew came over and almost apologetically asked if I had a manuscript because he was representing ECW. I guess he thought I didn't want to be published, which was, you know, I could understand why he thought that. And I said, no, fuck, fuck, take it, publish it. And uh, and then they took it and they they published the Hellmouth Beautifully. And I, and I called them up and I said, look, man, you want a two, a two for a deal? I'll write you another one. And then I wrote Pontypool, like in a very short period of time, and a fucking, you know, yeah, it was good. Uh, for like uh, 500 bucks or something. That's how the first, and, and he was, that's Michael Holmes, terrific guy, or amazing editor, and worked with him. I'm still working with him now, actually, on my next few books. So he's a great guy. It was a lifelong friendship. From what I understand, you have a degree in semiotics. Yeah. And I can really see that kind of influencing what you're doing with your writing. And it's just, it's wonderful. Well, thanks, man. I, uh, you know, the degree in semiotics was sort of silly. And, and uh, it, it was just something, when I was in university, uh, <laughs> I had no idea what to, what to take. And I didn't, uh, you know, just was just a few years or whatever. And, yeah, I took semiotics because I liked uh, 
that there was a class in Robert Maplethorpe and uh, Bunuel. So. Looking at um, some of the, the, the stuff that I've read about you, I mean, you're one of the few writers I know to kind of name check Alfred Jarre and, and, and the uh, yes. whole idea of the par- pataphysics. I mean, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I do. Yeah. In fact, uh, the, I'm working on a new, uh, well, it's my most uh, explicitly pataphysical novel I'm working on right now about the uh, <clears throat> the uh, adventurer um, Henry Hudson in 1611. I've been studying his um, <clears throat> his journals and stuff, and I've got some really interesting things worked out with it. It's fantastic fun. I'm basing it sort of loosely on uh, the exploiting opinions of Dr. Fausto and uh, a little bit of uh, Maldor. Uh, but it's fantastic because there was I've solved a, a mystery with it, and I'm <clears throat> a historical mystery uh, that I'm really thrilled with, and I can't give it away. Yeah, I can't quite give it away, but it's uh, and anyway, just enjoying the the uh, the journals and taking them literally with like thirty feet long mermaids slamming against the boat and you know gorgeous stuff. So Pool comes out in what nineteen ninety eight. Did it change everything for you? Oh no, 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 nothing has. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's a, the, the joke of the title. Yeah. How soon after that are you meeting Bruce McDonald, or even before that? How, is there talk of any sort of adaptation bef- before you uh, meet up with McDonald? No, it's very funny, man. You know, the book came out. It was a through this. It's a small press and it's a small, small writer, and it's not a. It's nothing. We went to the Elma Combo to launch it, which is a club in Toronto, and uh, Bruce shows up. I never met the guy. I know who he is. I know. I know. Him to look at him. He shows up at the launch, and uh, so I do my reading. You know, whatever. Sit down. Band comes on. Bruce comes over and he lays a Tinder egg in front of me. And I'm looking up at him. Fucking Bruce McDonald, man. And he goes, <laughs> "I'm going to option it for this." And I said, "Okay." I said, "Okay." And he says, "Do you want to write it?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and, and you know, that was it. But it was very odd, and you know, I was uh, st- struck by the way he did it. And so, yeah, he's a charming guy. I imagine this is your first screenplay that you had ever written before. Oh hell yeah! No, I it was I was terrible. I probably still am. You know, I just uh, the same way I write novels or anything. I just uh, made it up as I went along and acted as if I uh, I knew what I was doing. At what point does the whole uh, radio drama come in for you? Well, it was very funny. Bruce and I had worked for, I guess, 12 or 12 years or so, maybe more, on uh, various scripts of Pontypool. And we were both dedicated to it, and we we burned through like half a dozen producers who just thought we were nuts. And our our, uh, loyalty to each other was uh, self-destructive, whatever, because we would use each other to sort of defend completely insane choices in the script and what we wanted to do. <laughs> and so it, it's very hard to get a film like that made. And we were, you know, we struggled, with, but Bruce puts up a very good fight for a very good reason. And, you know, if he loses, then I'm all right with that. The CBC came to us. Uh, they called up Bruce because he's got a profile here. And he, you know, and they said, uh, he's done TV, lots of TV. And they said, uh, do you have anything, one sheet, two sheet thing, you could pitch for a radio show? 
for a world drama radio show thing. And, he, and so I guess he, he put out a you know request to a number of his writers. He's got a bunch of people working on things. I sent him this thing, and I said, hi. So I wrote out, uh, just I thought, uh, just uh, forget about the last 12 years of scripts that are piling up. Uh, start again. And, okay, it's a radio station. It's a radio show. It's a radio. So it's the voice of radio. So I just thought, uh, you know, immediately sort of pulled together a number of, there's a sort of Twilight Zone episode, I think, that I thought of, and uh, War of the Worlds, obviously. And uh, I just thought I I would uh, write write it as a end-of-the-world pony pool on the radio. <laughs> Pitched it in a page or two. And they came back to Bruce and they said, uh, Canada is right now losing soldiers in Afghanistan. And this is too dark for a national network. Uh, okay, fine. You know. And so we just forgot about that, and then went back to these murky forty-five fucking scripts, and and then uh, they came back to us about three years, four months later, and said, uh, uh, "We got nothing better." <laughs> and so, and so, which we always said, "Great, man, great." This is you know, this is, this is what we do with with this. That's fine. And so they uh, uh, they gave us a a way of paying people and uh, hiring people, and uh, we got Steve McCaddy and Lisa Hewlin right away. Georgino Rowley, all of them, and, you know, did a, a reading. It was so fucking great. It was fantastic. So we developed it as a radio thing. Then Bruce and I just went to the side and said, look, man, all we need is, like, whatever, X dollars, and we can turn this into a film. Just bring in fucking cameras and just do it like that. And so we, uh, you know, that kind of evolved into, we got some investors, and then it evolved into an actual film, which we further developed, and that was Pawnee And It's funny because then we forgot entirely about the CBC radio play because <laughs> it never aired because they seemed to like drop it, like which I guess government, you know, government funded the nationalist networks do. They just doesn't matter. They move on. So the film came out. It was good. And then, it, you know, hit a couple of, you know, uh, bells and uh, CBC eventually came back to us and said, uh, oh, so this is probably a good movie. <laughs> uh, let's do let's do the radio show. And so then we finished the radio show after that. Once the, once the film got attention. When you're floundering around doing all those different screenplays and trying to get this thing to work for the longest time, what are some of the ideas that you're throwing around? How, how are you working on this? I have written Ponte two and three. They're they're completed scripts built out of uh, those twelve or thirteen scripts. It's very funny because I went. There was a guy who contacted me and said he wanted a Pontypool object or whatever. He was like a fan guy. Oh, I don't have anything like that around. And then I sort of dug through some old scripts just for fun, right? <laughs> and I found this script where Grant Massey was a chick. He was carrying on this like mad postman always rings twice relationship with Sidney Breyer across the road. <laughs> it was completely twisted and kind of gender-swapping wildness. And I, I enjoyed it very much, sent it off to him. But yeah, we, we, tried, a, we tried many, many, many things. Not just tried, I think we, we did well with them. It was just that they weren't producible according to... The, the thing that killed us for a long time, and probably will continue to, was this model that on the box office weekend you have to have certain numbers. Or in any kind of release, you've got to have certain numbers. If you don't have them there, then you can't... You can't close. You can't tell people that it's, it's 
uh, you can't win the argument around money, uh, which I think is absolutely absurd, especially with Canadian independent horror. Uh, so, yeah, our opening weekend was terrible. And so it's very hard to talk producers into our, you know, we were eccentric in the way we opposed them. You can't convince them if you haven't made anybody money. So, but we're in a better spot now. It's hard to say, man. You know, I, I look at Pony 2 and 3. They're fantastic, beautiful, lovely. I would be thrilled to have them made in any scale, in any way. And But you got to talk somebody out of money. There's such a, a rich vein of characters and, and thoughts and ideas that are happening in the book that I must have just kind of driven you crazy to try to take that and make it into a typical three-act structure kind of a film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very funny because the first time, like I, after that uh, night I mentioned with the Bruce McKinderegg, so I went home and I, I said, oh, God, yes, I can write this thing. And I wrote it, you know, sort of according to certain parts of the book. And then I got dizzy and I threw the book away. And, you know, I thought uh, Bruce wants a masterpiece and that's what I'm writing. And, uh, I stopped at a certain point and I handed it to him. He loved it. He thought it was fantastic. He never he sent me flowers. <laughs> he sent me flowers. He did. And I was like blown away. I thought this was like my whole life's gonna change and then we submitted it to wherever the money's gonna come from and we were told this is the most but ridiculous thing that ever ever read. And uh, and nobody will ever make this you know go find professionals to work on it. <laughs> and, you know, that that was sort of how it all started. And, you know, I, I could hear the same, exact same thing tomorrow on a script, you know? It almost seems like the only way you could really approach that would be like, I don't know, almost like a slackers or a shortcuts or something. Yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of things I did. Like, at first of all, I tried to kind of, and there are script versions of it where I, I try to make it work the same way the book did. Uh, as far as tw- you know, twisting on uh, on stories that and, and and pulling narratives out of spots that there weren't or shouldn't be, whatever you know what I mean. They were they were good, but you just can't talk with with no proof that they can make money. You can't talk somebody into spending something like that. So you've got to sit down and uh, listen to what a committee wants. Although Bruce is very good at defending uh, the originator, the ideas and stuff. And, uh, you know, I work with them many times. Now, was that your first uh, uh, on-screen acting appearance as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I've, I have this, like, second, third, or whatever, fourth job as an actor. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting a request to act in film. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, thrilled. Once the movie comes out, and I know you said that it kind of died at the box office. I remember seeing it at, uh, it played TIFF, right? It, it, yeah, not... it did. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was in the TIFF Top 10. It, they, that was where the CBC started to take it, uh, pay attention to it, because it was like razzle-dazzle, pine pools of things. I remember it did very well at TIFF, and a lot of people were just kind of buzzing about that. Yeah. Did that help op- open any doors for you? I mean, other than kind of well, the CBC? Well, no, no, no. No, it didn't. It's kind of hard, you know, like, uh, you don't want to defame any organization. But, uh, no, to be fair, nobody knew what kind of film it was. And Bruce and I weren't doing a great job of telling people what kind of film it was. And so it just sort of like, 
yeah, people liked it, but it just like sort of floundered and flopped around and went into peculiar places and took a long time. <laughs> it was it was it was a failure. Certainly a failure for the first year, like yeah. But then uh, uh, the uh, the attention grew and interest grew. It was there in the beginning, but you know, now I'm very surprised, man. Like people are, uh, they love this film. Those performances are so amazing. This is the thing that, like, and I try to get this into because uh, I do a lot of work in film now, in sort of exploitation films and uh, uh, that kind of thing, you know. And uh, I, I I always think about uh, amazing afternoons having Lisa and uh, Stephen up in at my house to just work on dialogue for like hours, a couple of days, whatever, and just like you know hammer it out around this piano, this old this old uh, piano, honky tonk piano, just like and, and it was fantastic. It, and, and I just I always think that that has to be. What uh, any any film needs uh, is to allow the actors to uh, to work for uh, a while on things, and because uh, they 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 very much helped those scenes. And we talked about that. You know, it, you write a script, and it, <laughs> very often it turns out that somebody says a line, and then you got your other line. Then you got another line. Then you got a, you know. There's this kind of assumption that these are uh, dialogue. They're not. You know, you have to work with the actors to make that. That part of it uh, actuate. Well, what's been your process for the other screenplays that you've written? Because since what twenty thirteen, I mean, your name has shown up so many times on so many scripts. Me and a bunch of guys up here. Uh, I'm in the southern part of uh, Georgian Bay, uh, and I work with Foresight, who are like lit, uh, work twenty miles away from here, which is amazing because we're in the middle of nowhere. This is central Ontario. This is nowhere near, you know, where movies get made in, in Ontario as much as they do. Uh, and so we found each other, and these guys have got, you know, a deal, stuff. And they need a writer that can, that can write fast and write well. I'm there. And uh, so, yeah, we create these uh, two or three bizarro exploitation, you know, B-films, every grindhouse films every year. Like, it's fucking dream come true, really. You know, like, who could want more? And uh, so I enjoy it. You know, some have good, some have bad. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm i just happy that half the people that see them hate it, and the other half love it. So, Well, you do have a, a fondness for some pretty, I don't want to say bad, but just amazingly bad. Like, I mean, sublimely bad films. Yes, of course, yes. Yes, and, and that's you know, uh, I, I I I don't I don't achieve them. I don't uh, I don't get to where I think they are. I, I try. I think the Septic Man has moments, and uh, Hellmouth has many many more moments, and I think has been understood of really uh, gorgeous awfulness and you know epic. Uh, Plot perversion and you know, blank-eyed fucking stupidity. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to me. I I was so impressed rereading Pontypool again recently, and I'd forgotten that you dropped science crazed in there. Oh yeah, that's a funny thing, man. Because me 
seen a guy, a guy who's, uh, I think I've actually even brought him up earlier. Maybe. I don't know, he was a friend of mine, and him and I in the early 80s, we were like, uh, you know, bad drugs, too much booze, you know, crazy fucking idiot, whatever. And we used to rent, do money, and rent uh, VHS splatter flicks. And we would rent sometimes like 20 a night. And we, yeah, yeah, we did this over and over and over again. And we'd sit in front of the TV with the VCR, and we'd have our, you know, our booze and our dope and whatever. And we would throw in, a, uh, we'd have it scheduled so that you only watch 19 minutes of the first one, then 20 minutes of the next one, five minutes of the next one. And we just went back and forth, back and forth, all, all, all you know, until four in the morning, whatever. Did it a bunch of times and discovered so many amazing films out of. Uh, you know, that there was a Sleepaway Camp, Phantasm, and uh, all the Herschel Gordon Lewis, and, and Science Craze. And Science Craze stopped us. It's like, okay, let's do half an hour of this one. Yeah, half an hour. <clears throat> but we had to watch the whole thing. And then, you know, we probably watched the whole thing quite a few times. And I thought, uh, Nobody had ever seen, would ever have ever seen it until it showed up with the, the Rewind This folks. Blown away. And I put it in uh, Pony Bowl, yeah. Yeah, that, that actually made me laugh out loud when, when uh, you brought that up. I was just like, oh, wow. Because I was so shocked to see you on the, the disc of Science Craze. Well, uh, I think that was through uh, Josh Johnson and, uh, yeah, the Rewind This uh, folks. And, uh, yeah, well, they and they tuned me into uh, it, it's a uh, uh, prairie town where the Videonomicon, you know, like a fucking mixed up. <laughs> anyway, but those guys are fucking great. The release is fantastic. I was so thrilled to see it. So thrilled, man. Just that science craze. So I know you you've got a band going. Yeah, we're, we're the best fucking band right now ever. That's awesome. Sorry, what? I said that's awesome. Really? Yeah. Okay. If you're the best fucking band ever, yeah, that's yeah. great. That's what I said. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Okay. So what else are you up to these days? That's it, man. I just, uh, oh yeah, I'm writing a novel or two actually, and uh, working on a, uh, well, sort of a script text for a Argentinian film. It's a really a neat film. Totally cool. Don't know if I can talk about it, nah, but it's a, it's a interesting film. And uh, another a new one for uh, Foresight, going to uh, revving that up tomorrow morning. Actually, with uh, John Geddes, director of Helma, uh, a really strange, really strange and sort of beautiful idea, beautiful film uh, that takes place entirely on Georgian Bay and one island, uh, with mysterious uh, noises and signs coming from across the horizon of the lake to let you know it's all done. Make a sandwich, make a sandwich, you know. And then that's the band, right? Did I read that uh, you're adapting uh, People Still Live in Cashtown Corners? I was. Uh, I was. That sort of didn't quite work. Uh, yeah, actually, that one's up up for option. Yeah, totally. I, I, I know how to write it. Anybody wants to work on uh, Cashtown Corners with me, I know how to write it. Uh, I work for cheap, and I'll give the option for cheap, and we'll make it. Very cool. Have you read that book? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Have you really? That's on, a, really, eh? Yeah, I listened to it on audio. Actually, did you like it? Yeah, I loved it. 
It's a great book, man. That, that's one of my favorite. That's a, a new book, right? So it's a different kind of chapter from that uh, uh, the first five or whatever. Yeah, Cash Town is a nice book. Yeah, I based it on a bunch of different things. That book. I seem to remember the the one of the stories. The uh, I'm trying to remember the main character's name, which was like it was almost Clark. like a pickup. Yeah, like a pickup from that that uh, the news story about the guy who uh, uh, who went by that name. I mean, other than the director, obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, the director is not there, but it's also uh, about John List. Uh, and but, yeah, what, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But what, the reason why I sort of picked that was kind of a central uh, notion in, in how it, how it, the, the book was made, <laughs> which is to uh, reproduce. Because his the murders he committed are so elaborately written on, and they, you know, and and riffed on and played on in films and books and all kinds of things that you know exactly what happened in every second in that house, uh, forensically or however it's done with true crime. And so what I wanted, I just set up a character who didn't know that was going to happen, but I knew. And so his reluctance and his horror and his fear of what he's doing, uh, that's what I wanted to accentuate. To, to, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it was going to happen. So there's that sense of inevitability because I am going to take you to each place where you killed your children and where you killed your wife and you killed your mom. And uh, so that, that was, you know, that was a, a central thing. Which, which, because I wanted to heighten the sense that it was true, uh, and and deformed and terrible. Yeah, that was great. A great, great book. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. The first time I read Pontypool, I read it, and then the second time I actually listened to it. And I gotta say, the audio adaptation of it is really good. You mean there's some? There's an audio version of it. Yeah, yeah. Of the book. Yeah, I picked it up by through Audible. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that. Really? And it's pretty good? I want to hear that fucking thing. I, you know what, dude? Honestly, I didn't know that. That's funny. As long as you're getting royalties for it. That's that's the most important part. I'm not sure if I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on. There's my wife trying to call me. Hang on. Just like, hang on. Merci d'éviter les contacts avec votre proche famille et éviter ce qui suit. Limiter les charmes comme le miel ou un amoureux. Parler bébé avec des enfants en bas âge. Discours rhétorique. Merci de ne traduire pas cette annonce. All right, we are back and we are talking about Pontypool. Morris, did you have a chance to see that uh, Twilight Zone episode I posted the other day? I, I did. I got to thank you for that because uh, generally all my Twilight Zone viewing over the years has been Rod Serling's original plus, I guess, the early 1980s movie. But I never really actually got into watching the revived TV series of uh, was it late 80s or was it the early 90s? I can't even remember. I think it was mid 80s. I want to say 85, 86, something like that. Right, right. So, yes, I, I did watch that. And uh, I, I thought it was yet a, 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 another very clever take on uh, the whole 
on the whole uh, story of words. Yeah, and this was so it was uh, actually directed by uh, Wes Craven and uh, written by Rockney S. O'Bannon, and it is a, a, a episode called Wordplay with who's that? Robert Klein, I think, is the the main person. And he is living in this world, and as the show continues, it's just a normal, you know, everyday kind of work-a-day thing. And he, you know, gets up in the morning with his wife, and his kid's running a fever, and he, you know, ends up going to work. And his neighbor, at one point, when he's going out to his car, his neighbor talks about uh, his little dog, who happens to be an encyclopedia, and Klein's just like, what in the, an encyclopedia? And then as the day goes on, he keeps hearing more and more words that aren't supposed to be there, or he might not even notice. I love the guy who sits behind him at work and says, you know, oh, you know, we old dogs, you know, we've got all the mayonnaise. And when one of his employees comes up or one of his coworkers and says, you know, can you recommend a good place for dinosaur? That's really when the shit kind of hits the fan. He's just like, what? Why are you talking about dinosaur? And he comes home and then his wife ends up serving him dinosaur. And he just is like, what are you talking about? It's lunch. And then she gets so confused and tells him that lunch basically is the color pink. And I love this whole way that everything just disintegrates for this poor guy. And it's like, is he wrong or is the world wrong? But the entire world has suddenly shifted. You know, Kiss has become kill in this world. Everything has moved over to these completely arbitrary words. And it just, it's a terrifying episode for me. I mean, it's only about 20 minutes long, but it just, it, it must feel like what it feels like to lose your mind. You know, it just it must be like you know the, those moments of dementia where you can't remember anything or you just can't understand what people are saying. I mean, it's, I, I occasionally get into these conversations at work where I just can't understand what somebody is saying, but I think it's mostly because they're an idiot. You know, but <laughs> in this case, they're just using the wrong words for everything. It's just like, and I love that moment at the end of it when he opens up one of his son's books and there's a picture of a dog and it says Wednesday under it. And it's like, Oh my God, this guy's going to have to relearn everything. And just to think of how much, you know, I'm, I'm teaching my granddaughter now language and, and, you know, she's constantly like, what is that? What is that? What is that? And so trying to teach her things about objects, you know, when I hand her a book or a block or something, I just don't go, this is a block. I say, this is a block. It's pink. It's square. You know, it's made out of plastic and try to give everything about that because there are so many words and so many terms, so many descriptors. And to think that this guy now lives in a world where none of that means anything for him anymore. Everything means something else. It just feels like a, a wonderful, wonderful nightmare your granddaughter there i got to confess that when when my son was born i was thinking it was only then like as a father that it occurred to me how do you make a child understand concepts beyond you know, the obvious you know, beyond you know nouns what they can see what they can touch how do you describe feelings how, how do you make them aware and th they do eventually just get it but in that twilight zone episode you do get the horror of this guy having to start again, but maybe it's something like what an adult would discover in just learning a second language because in, in his head, I imagine he'll always be translating, okay, Wednesday is dog and dinosaur is lunch, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, it's but unfortunately you know, when when you're trying to learn another language you do it with the safety net maybe of other people around you who know your language and you can feed off each other but just as equally he doesn't understand that the world has shifted the rest of the world at least you know in his immediate universe doesn't even know that their world has shifted they just think he's an idiot that's probably an interesting contrast between this program and uh, watching Pontypool, at least in Pontypool, there was the illusion of safety with Grant because he had, as long as he had Sydney and for you know the time that he had Laurel Ann while he's still trying to work out, he still thought, right, well, we don't know what's going on out there, but I still have these people. This guy is on his own. And in some ways, that's even more terrifying, I think. I'm imagining him in say five years where maybe he has relearned everything and maybe he's gotten to that point where now he's not necessarily translating everything. Maybe he's actually dreaming in this new language. Who's to say that the next day he won't wake up and everything is shifted again. So he has to relearn everything. Oh, that'd be cruel. Yeah. (laughs) I got to say that's one thing that uh, I I don't know whether this is common of the, uh, the revived episodes of, the Twilight Zone, but I sort of missed having Rod Serling or a Rod Serling substitute say, meet a man who's going to face a big shift in his life. He doesn't know it yet. I mean, there was the voiceover at the end, but I sort of liked <laughs> that little thing at the beginning. It's not its not even so much like a hand-holding uh, thing because you know he's maybe a little bit obtuse as to what's going to happen and you don't really know until you get into it but i sort of liked that as a as an intro but anyway that that didn't take away from the story as it was but yeah it was still a very very interesting concept well i have to say a lot of people were down on that 80s twilight zone and i watched probably all of it when it was out and um looking up this episode it was out on october 4th 1985 which is kind of weird because you know we're recording in october here but anyway um yeah and i have to say it was i enjoyed it i mean i'm sure that just like the original twilight zone there are some episodes that were kind of clunky and in this one, though, it was kind of nice because they would have multiple stories per episode. So it was one of those, if you don't like this one, wait until after the commercial break. There might be a better episode or a better segment on after that. And some of those were just little tiny things. So they would be like an idea of a what if. And this is one of those, what was it, 20 minutes or something, kind of a what if. And it's just like, it's really effective. And they don't try to, they don't try to do the outer limits thing of like, let's stretch this bitch to an hour and see how we can, you know, make you bored with it right. they leave it short and sweet mm-hmm. yeah I, I, certainly watching that has uh, inspired me i think to go search at more of the uh, i won't say modern because we're in 2016 but some certainly more of those uh, 80s twilight zone episodes because I, I, I thought it was very it was a clever concept it was clever writing and sure as you said some of the original rod serling uh, helmed episodes you know weren't necessarily as as good as others but uh you know we kept with the show because overall the concept was great and when the writing was on point it really was so i imagine that there'd be some great ones in the 80s i don't know why i never cottoned onto it i don't know but my loss but thank thank goodness for uh modern technology and DVDs and Blu-rays and the like making that sort of thing available. Well, yeah, I think the original Twilight Zone had the advantage, too, of being around for, what, five years or something? So that plus, uh, I want to say one of the seasons was like 
almost 40 episodes long. So when you have well over uh, 150 maybe episodes of the show, it's easy to for you and I probably – we could probably sit here for an hour and a half and talk about, do you remember this episode? Do you remember that episode? And it's – there are so many good ones that the, the bad ones, you know, just – they're just going to slide into the ether because – it would just had so many shows. Did you ever read or see Stephen King's cell? No, look, I'm actually, my son should probably be down here talking to you about that. He was a Stephen King, uh, fanatic. I, I think the only Stephen King book I ever read was, uh, was Carrie. And that was probably shortly after it came out. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, and I love that. So I don't know ever, don't really know why I never followed up on it. But no, uh, short answer, I've not read Stephen King's cell. I, for some reason, over the last couple of years, I've been listening to some of his stuff. I, I, I really gave up on him. Well, I gave up on him shortly after Misery as far as his written stuff. I don't know why, because I liked Misery. Misery was a great book. But then I just, I don't know if I grew out of him or what it was. And then I picked him up again a few years ago and I, read dream catchers and that was terrible absolutely horrible horrible book and just so long and drawn out and then had a horrible ending but for some reason i've been listening to his stuff i will you know download some mp3s and listen to some books i listened to under the dome i listened to well, I just listened to Dr. Sleep for the Shining episode, and then I did listen to Cell. And Cell had an interesting concept. It was um, basically a phone signal goes out. I mean, this was written – it came out in 2006, and this was right around when – having a cell phone was pretty much the norm. You know, there was that period there in the early 2000s where not everybody had a cell phone, but that changed quickly, of course. And so this was a time when everybody had a cell phone. So you can see Stephen King, you know, the, you can hear the wheels turning going like, what if a deadly signal was broadcast through this where that turned people, either killed them or turned them into zombies? And that was pretty much the concept and it's interesting though because there were some parallels between this and pontypool as far as the way that signals kind of pass through people and people almost became like radio transmitters and i want to say that they even say that in pontypool of people transmitting stuff and there's that moment where ken is there by the one kid's mouth and has the phone up to it and you can hear this like almost it sounds like a doll or something going mama mama that reminded me a lot of cell of course pontypool changes everything came out in 96 the pontypool the movie came out in 2008 stephen king's cell came out in 2006 I can see Cell taking a little bit from Pontypool Changes Everything, but Pontypool Changes Everything, the book, is not not really anything like Pontypool the movie. I mean, I was reading Pontypool Changes Everything in 2008 when this was playing at the Toronto Inter- International Film Festival, and I was thinking, okay, I better be prepared for this. And the book is it's almost like it's almost like a Raymond Carver kind of thing. It's just all of these like right. short stories and sometimes they intertwine and sometimes they don't. And Grant Massey is there as a character. He's kind of this like 
sexual predator for young boys and stuff. I mean, he's nothing like the Grant Masley that we're going to get in the movie. And there's the whole idea of this word transmitted virus. But I mean, it goes off every place. I mean, and it's it was really tough for me to read. I have to say, it was much easier for me to listen to when I re-listened to it before, or, or listened to it before speaking to Tony Burgess because I was just like, oh my god, I I I don't know if I can actually make it through it again just because it 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 jumps all over the place. It's very. It's schizophrenic, but in that way, it kind of keeps you off guard and it keeps you off balance the way that I think he wants you to be off balance. Right. I'd be looking forward to see uh, if Bruce McDonald and Tony Burgess, for that matter, come good with uh, their promise to do Pontypool changes and then Pontypool changes everything to see two other stories within that universe and whether they go back to the book and bring a character and create a story from that or if they're faithful to some other aspect of the book and i say that as someone who hasn't read the book but it'd be interesting to know whether they do something that remains faithful to another character in the book or whether they come up with a new story but this is certainly a universe i'd love to see more about because wasn't the concept pontypool here's something happening pontypool changes the concept uh, explained a little bit more pontypool changes everything now you understand every, uh, absolutely everything to its conclusion, if, if, if that's at all possible. Yeah, and there are so many different characters in the book that he could, they could take this in so many different ways. I remember a character who is there with his higher power, and his higher power is kind of a, a, a being that, it just hangs out with him. You know, he's, he's, he's trying to swear off drugs and his higher powers hanging out with him and trying to steer him in the right direction. And then there's a family who ends up getting murdered, but the two kids are alive and they live together out in the forest and they end up capturing and torturing zombies. And the, the, one of the kids, I think if I'm not screwing up two stories ends up taking some of the body parts and stuff and kind of creating a new body out of it and stuff. And they end up having this incestuous relationship with each other as they grow into young adults. I mean, so it goes everywhere. There are so many places that you could have take this story. And I was glad that they focused in on the Grant Massey character as a, as a beginning to this. So let me ask you if, um, if he'd been alive and up to doing it, do you think that a more faithful uh, a visual representation of the book could have been done by someone like Robert Altman, whose specialty was to go all over the place? <laughs> it wouldn't have been enough. I think that focusing in on Grant Massey offered them an opportunity to tell a very um, – coherent and and very in-depth story as opposed to just giving us little tastes of things all over the place. So I don't know if a shortcuts-esque version of Pontypool would have been as satisfying as what we ended up getting. And I think the idea of breaking it into three different movies is probably a really good idea. Triptych. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Look, I I really hope that uh, that does come good. I mean, with you know, we often hear things from directors saying, oh, yes, I have this project on the back burner and uh, either through lack of funding or a better offer comes their way and it doesn't eventuate. But this is really something I'd like to see developed into uh, a couple more films. I'd, I'd certainly be down for that. 
Now, do, do I remember right when we talked last time when I was on, uh, it was right after we were done recording the uh, 20th Century Oz episode, you had talked about getting your hands on a copy of Highway 61 and rewatching that, uh, just kind of preparing yourself for this. I did indeed, yeah. I, uh, I ordered a copy of the DVD, bought it, and rewatched it for the first time since the cinema run back in 1991. So, yeah, I actually watched that maybe a month ago. And um, I was sort of a little bit worried thinking, oh, well, I enjoy this as much as I did the first time. And I have to say, I still adored it. I think it was an absolutely fantastic film. And I, I was watching it with my son and he said, this looks a bit like a David Lynch film, Dad. And I thought, yeah, I guess it does. A little bit, uh, you know, that character who, uh, who, who keeps uh, following Pokey Jones and, and, um, and Bangs. I've forgotten her first name. Uh, very, very uh, Lynch-esque. Uh, so, you know, it could be something out of um, Lost Highway, uh, very much in that vein. So, yeah, I, I could absolutely see that as a, a David Lynch film. Maybe, I'm not exactly lynch light. maybe a, a little bit more accessible to people who find uh, David Lynch hard going. I certainly don't, but um, I, I'd certainly say, well, if you've, if you've never watched David Lynch before, watch Highway 61. Um, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And it, it was interesting to see Pontypool because that was uh, a very different take. You know, Highway 61 and, as I mentioned at the start of the show, Hardcore Logo are both road films, films about the great wider world, you know, taking a, taking a trip. And Pontypool was very, very insular. Uh, I, I can't say for sure whether those films prepared Bruce McDonald to make you know, the best film that he could with Pontypool, uh, but you know certainly his experience as a director for having done films like that. Now, I certainly haven't seen what else he what else is in his repertoire, so I might be talking out of turn here. But I'm wondering whether this was I want to do something different. I want to go away from the big bad world and I want to bring it into the small tiny world. Yeah, I, he's someone now who I have a really really healthy respect for as a uh, as a storyteller as a director and I definitely want to go into his back catalog even further. I think I might've mentioned this on the careful episode that we did uh, a while back where I remember working at Blockbuster and Blockbuster used to have a, uh, a magazine that they would put out and it was actually very well written and had a lot of very interesting articles. Uh, no nude pictures, unfortunately. I know some people read Blockbuster magazine for the nude pictures. I read it for the articles. <laughs> I remember them talking about this kind of new wave of Canadian directors, and uh, it's funny to think back, but yeah, uh, Bruce was right there, 91 with Highway 61, and then Adam McGoyan with Calendar, I think was 92, and then uh, Tales of the Gimli Hospital was right around there, and then Careful being out in uh, 93 from Guimadon, the uh, famous Quebec filmmaker. It was this real kind of uh, kind of shot over the bow of, of these three very powerful directors that were coming out of, of uh, Canada. And it just, you know, they've all gone on to do such interesting things, and some have gone much more mainstream. Bruce uh, has had a, a fantastic career and done things like Hardcore Logo, Hardcore Logo 2, all of these different films. And and it's, it's just very fascinating. And of course, you know, we've talked to, to Guy a few times, and, you know, we just... Um, uh, um, my friend Skiz mentioned his latest movie last week when we talked and said that that was uh, you know 
one of his favorite films from the previous year, from 2015. So all three of these filmmakers making very interesting work, and to think that they're all coming out, you know, right around uh, you know the early 90s, it's just like, oh, okay. And to read all th- about all three of them way back in 93, 94, and that I'm still, or that we're still talking about them today, I think is pretty darn impressive. Adam Agoyan, I've not seen nearly enough of his, but about three or four that I have seen, uh, yeah, really great shot over the bow, a fantastic director. And there was, I think the film that sort of hit me the most was uh, this one called Exotica. And that's one that really plays with the viewer's perceptions. Um, uh, it's, uh, is that one that you've seen, Mike? I have seen that one. I, the thing that I remember the most of that one was just how absolutely gorgeous our main character was in that film. By our main character, of course, I mean Elias Codius. Yes, uh, of course, of course. What I liked about the technique there was it paralleled the story. You know, we get you know, this, this character who I think she's – was she working in a strip bar or something like that? And mm-hmm. the, the, as the film goes, it's – as we get a little bit more revealed, the film is like a, a strip tease, as it were, until the final motivation, every, the whole story is revealed by – the end and we get layer upon layer upon layer being taken away like article of clothing being taken away and i just love how the method for telling the story parallels the actual story itself and i just came away from that thinking wow this this guy is amazing unfortunately i think only a small number of his films have had theatrical releases here i i think i saw the adjuster at a melbourne film festival uh, many years ago uh, the suite hereafter got, I think, a mainstream release. Exotica, maybe once again, I saw the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, one film of his I really, really want to see. I'm not sure if it's his latest, but I think it's fairly recent called Remember. I think is that with Christopher Plummer that came out earlier on this year here, and I didn't get a chance to see it, but I'm really, really keen to see it. I, I hadn't heard of anything from uh, from Adam McGoyan in uh, a long time, but um, I, I think there was. From, wasn't there a film that he did that was said to be a parallel to Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis? I think oh. where, where, where the truth lies, I think it was called. But I, I'd, I'd heard stories that it was supposed to be like a parallel to to Martin and Lewis, the seedier side of their of uh, their uh, career. Well, that sounds like right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, that was Kevin Bacon in that one, right? Right, right. Yeah, that, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. But uh, this latest one, remember, I think with Christopher Plummer, that's something I'm very keen to see. That had a cinema run here, but uh, very little of his stuff, I think, has been seen in the cinemas here, which is uh, is a big shame because, you know, based on the four or so films I've seen, I just think the man is, is a huge talent. Yeah, I remember Speaking Parts being one of those big ones. That's another uh, late 80s kind of a film. And, yeah, just uh, it was such a – such a good scene happening at that time. And I'm sure that, you know, yeah, he's probably still making fantastic films. I just haven't had the opportunity to, to catch up with them. Just like you. Oh, well, you, you got five lifetimes ahead of you, Mike. I'm sure you'll catch up. As soon as I have to teach myself a whole new language, once I'm done with that, I should be good. <laughs> should understand things. Indeed. <laughs> All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the city, a reckless pack of depraved hipsters prepares to wage war on traditional family value. You got your bank, your church, your malls, your cops, 
your guns, your righteous goal, your corporate loot, your fiscal balls. I can dig it. I can dig it. Do the pea soup enemas come before or after the rats are released? Um, uh, my collar is white, my nose is brown. I got a kind of overlook in the town. When opportunity knocks, I got to hear from locks. I was soon I come out here the school of hard knocks. I'm a man of renown. There's no business in town that don't court me. Satan's siren call set to a lurid, throbbing backbeat. I can read your vow with one purgative howl. I'm a bourgeois booty. I'm lady nude. I'm rude old nude in the school Worm and see the self-righteous right-wing bigots fan the flames of the culture war with their pompous, hidebound, moralizing, and insipid state-sanctioned art. I'm head over paws, I know it's futile, he's a junkyard dog, and I'm a white bread poodle. Right, a simple quiz, a crumb of justice, and I'm getting for that mocking tick, tick, ticking of the endless final round. Witness hordes of self-loathing bohemian artists as they wallow in their pathetic self-flagellation while teetering on the brink of bathos. Who am I? Can't imagine your skin ever rotting. It's a mighty love thing at the crack of doom. It's a big long pipe bomb with a pink boom. It's a big boy strut with a little boy waddle. It's a kind of love thing with the fold down throttle. Until all forms of art are subsidized. Until the workers run the factories. Until condoms are dispensed with crayons. Until every flag comes with its own match. Until the sacred school prayer is replaced with a minute of angst and foreboding. Existo, a movie, nay, a film. So saucy, so reckless, it dares to call itself a musical. If you have to go out and you see art, do not, I repeat, do not try to interpret it yourself. Call 911 and let the art squad defuse it. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Existo, the Forbidden Movie, where I'll be joined by Skiz Sizik and Scott Kalanico just in time for Election Day. Before we go, I want to thank Morris for coming on the show. Morris, what has been keeping you busy, sir? You are a man of many talents and many podcasts. Oh, well, well. Two at, for a time this year did seem to be one too many. Uh, yes, I'm still doing uh, both Love That Album and See Here. I took a bit of a break for three months from uh, Love That Album podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to continue, but fortunately I had some very uh, wonderful and reliable people in the community who took over the show for three months. One of them, uh, Eric Peterson, who I know has also been on the projection booth. And uh, while I was just sort of gathering my thoughts, okay, what can I still speak about music? Now I've uh, found the mojo again. So, yeah, so basically uh, I've been back helming Love that album for the last couple of months. We're about to record again in a couple of weeks doing uh, what I call mystery box episode where the audience don't know what we're going to discuss, but there'll be 
uh, my, my partner on that show uh, and myself will each discuss in short form three jazz albums that have uh, played an important part in our lives. Uh, and uh, next week, I think I'll be recording the next See Here episode with uh, my two great friends and very knowledgeable uh, compadres Bernard Stickwell and Tim Merrill will be discussing as it's appropriate for uh, October or Shocktober. We'll be discussing Little Shop of Horrors. There's you know the musical connection and there's the uh, the horror connection. So very much looking forward to talking about that. And we've, I've even sort of gone and prepared a little bit by going back to the Roger Corman original, and I've got a few interesting <laughs> thoughts about that one. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I think possibly by the time this episode comes out, our little Shop of Horrors episode will be uh, out and available for people to dig on. And yeah, still doing my thing with my uh, acapella group, the Ice Halos. We have a 10th anniversary next year, so still trying to work out what we're going to do that will be nice and special for a, a, a 10th anniversary performance. But um, we'll come up with something in, in uh, due course, no doubt. And then apart from that, just doing all the regular being a father – nine to five work sort of thing. But um, yes, keeping, keeping busy, keeping active. Yeah. The most surprising thing to find out about your acapella group is that you actually sing soprano. I never would have pegged you for that. Well, you know, it's, it's just what I do. I mean, it's, you've got to go where the talent is and I am, I'm the uh, soprano and I'm the prettiest one in the group. So, you know, what can I do? Yeah. You're such a diva. <laughs> uh, prima donna is the word I've had thrown up and at me uh, more often, but uh, well, thank you, Morris, so much. This has been a lot of fun. I'm really glad that you come on the show. My absolute uh, pleasure and privilege, Mike. Thanks very much. And um, I, I, you know, just putting it out there, look forward to doing it again. Yeah, definitely. Got to get you on in uh, 2017. I think we're kind of booked up for the rest of 2016 here. So we'll have to, uh, I'll shoot you over the list of what's on deck for next year. And uh, yeah, please feel free and go through and pick out something that you'd like to be on. Absolutely looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Mike. And I will have links to all of those things, all those shows that you're on, even your musical group over at projection-booth.com, where people can go over and find out more about today's episode, find out more about our guests on here. And you can also link over to our Patreon, where you can uh, donate to the show if you want. That might be a nice thing to do. Or if you don't have that much money and you want to still give back to the show, you can go on over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Every rating, every review, and every donation help the Projection Booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I'm a sweet little cupcake. Baked by the devil!